Hello everyone and thank you for the download. It's Tuesday, December 22nd, and this is episode 30 of the Marty Called Podcast. I'm Tim Grassy, and today I'm joined by my co-host, the Sultan Asaki. What's up, Josh? Ho, ho, ho. What'd you call me? <laughs> and Skipper Ben. How's it going, Ben? Call me Gutenberg. <laughs> <laughs> That'll make sense at the end of the show. So, we are back after only a well, few weeks. Uh, who knows? We, we could go with the <laughs> ASMR <laughs> outro. Uh, anyway... We are back after a few weeks, as we didn't really promise but hinted at uh, on the last episode. Uh, we're going to be answering your listener questions, but before we do that, uh, Universal gave a tour of uh, Super Nintendo World, which is opening in uh, Japan in February, uh, and it's a good 15-minute tour. It doesn't go into the actual uh, attractions other than a walkthrough. But uh, it's certainly worth watching. We have links to that in our Facebook group and potentially in the show notes if I'm inclined to do such things. But, uh, Josh, why don't you introduce it? Um, Tell us who did it, uh, who kind of gave us the walking tour. And uh, I need the entire history of Nintendo as a company, if you can provide that as well. (laughs) So this is where my wife would say I'm mansplaining. But uh, Nintendo is a very fascinating company because to to be maybe oversimplistic about it, they basically started out in the whorehouse business. Uh, And I suppose their board of directors might characterize it differently, but I think they would have to agree that the the nature of their initial business was they rented out hotel rooms by the hour. That's what they did. Uh, And then they moved into playing cards and it was, you know, they were founded like in the natural transition, you know, uh, know, what 1890 or something like that. Yeah. 1890 or something. Very, very old company been around for a long time and certainly have historically not been known for what they are today. Uh, But, but in the modern era, um, they've really sort of been experts at human behavior and understanding what people enjoy doing. Um, And I think, you know, I, I realize it's a little bit of a crass example in the context of the hotel by the hour example. Um, But if you think back to the early days of video games, you know, the technology, quite frankly, was crap. I mean, it was just, it was amazing that it worked. But you had games like Pong, you know, which was like the minimum viable thing that could possibly be fun. And only a few years later, Nintendo came out with Donkey Kong. And that effort was was spearheaded by a guy named Shigeru Miyamoto, who is uh, the person in this video. And he's just sort of a legend for really understanding gameplay and and what's fun. And maybe you could say he's sort of a master at avoiding the trap that we've talked about a lot on this show, which is using technology just for the sake of technology and instead focusing on the human experience, what people like doing, things that that give pleasure. And when you look at Intel's, uh, excuse me, at uh, Nintendo's product offerings over the years, you could see that that's sort of the case. Something like the Intel, uh, I keep calling them Intel. Um, you know, the Nintendo Wii came out, you know, when when Xbox was a thing. And in terms of graphics quality, the Wii was was trash. But it just it it had this charm and sweetness to it that really uh, was was attractive to people just because of our human nature and the things that we enjoy doing. So when I saw this video the first thing that really leaped off the screen to me was that this is a physical embodiment of that. It's just, it's fun. You can just look at it and go, that would be a cool place to be. Uh, And it's maybe one of the best examples I've seen of using intellectual property in a way that's going to combine that nostalgic experience of seeing something that we grew up with, coupled with an organic experience that's going to be fun to do. 
um, I think it's really neat, and I'm, ve- I'm very excited to see some more depth because, as you mentioned, we really just saw a little bit of walk around of some parts of the land. There's a Mario Kart attraction that they very briefly uh, showed pieces of, but certainly there's a lot more there to be seen. The uh, the embodiment of fun is very much shown in this video, and this is a guy that genuinely enjoys what he's doing and showcasing his vision come to life. So uh, he, I assume, was working with Universal Creative, and he wasn't like lead design on this, but um, it is still his brain. Uh, in many cases, just dumped out into the real world, which is, yeah, which kind of, I'm sure, if anybody had had that realization, be it James Cameron with Pandora or J.K. Rowling with the uh, with Harry Potter, any of that would just be kind of mind blowing. But um, it really just it, it brings people back. It's not a you know direct recreation of a specific land. In a specific uh, Nintendo game, there are, there are a ton of Mario references to it throughout, but it's not like a specific Mario Land. Um, sure, there are there are references to a lot of different things, and then throughout the land, there are references to other games as well. So um, that type of environment, I wasn't a uh, Nintendo kid growing up, but even that uh, is is very very intriguing. And what they did show was uh, a lot of that exterior facade that kind of is the uh, <laughs> almost seemingly down to the pixel recreation of the concept art. Um, yeah. And that's one of the things that when I when I showed it to Marie for the first time, she's like, is that the concept art or is that actually what they did? And <laughs> there really isn't much difference there. Um, yeah, I, had the, I had the same impression. Yeah, you know what was funny about the Nintendo? Uh, the, the notion of a Nintendo land was always interesting to me because unlike Avatar... Uh, or Star Wars Land, as uh, you know, we called it back in the day, where there was a lot of questions as to what that would actually look like. Mm-hmm. I think I could. I was a Nintendo kid, so I, I don't mean to speak for anyone else, but I will tell you that when I heard Universal is going to build a Nintendo-themed land, the instantaneous thought I had in my head is exactly what they built, mm-hmm. and, and I think that that's kind of cool because largely what I think it means is that it's very likely to satisfy, um, you know, what guests who go there who have fond memories of Nintendo as a kid are going to want. Um, you know, and I say exactly, I don't mean that I, you know, Oh, I could have designed this, but I'm saying there, there's, there's no surprises here, right? You don't look at it and go, what is that? It's, it's, it's very obvious. It's very clear. Um, and I think that's part of why this IP lends itself so well to this sort of, uh, you know, f- physical version is that, um, there's no mistaking it. So we talked about this, uh, not this land specifically in Tokyo, but we talked about it back on episode 11 when the news of Epic Universe broke in Florida. <laughs> and we went into details on many things related to Super Nintendo uh, land or Super Nintendo World. I'm not sure what, what are they referring to land, world? I don't know what the uh, specific name is. Thank you, Ben. Um, but one of the things we talked about at length was the the way that they would do Mario Kart because you knew that that was going to be in there, and yeah. they they hinted at it. Uh, and I don't know if we actually even pointedly said it, but uh, I know that I've had the discussion with people that augmented reality makes a ton of sense for this. So yeah. uh, as we look to uh, innovate or theme parks to innovate rather, 
this, as far as I know, is the first real large-scale attraction to use augmented reality. Um, something that, uh, I mean, we see glasses on a multitude of different theme park rides, but it's all 3D glasses. Um, whereas right. this appears to be something that is not necessarily predetermined. Um, while I believe it's going to be a 100% passive experience, um, maybe it isn't. Maybe there is a level of interactivity that the uh, augmented reality can kind of make it a little bit more than just that regular passive experience. And that's maybe the one downside to building a, a themed land uh, mm-hmm. on the back of a video game is is unlike a movie, which is also a passive experience, people sort of have an expectation that when they're looking at the, you know, in the environs that they're used to in a video game, that they're going to have some degree of control over things. Right. So, I, I suppose there's some risk there where if you grew up playing Mario Kart and now you finally get the 3D version of Mario Kart and you can't drive, I could see how that might be <laughs> disappointing to some. I mean, we, we joked last week about my disappointment in the flight simulator and your, and the argument was basically that because I have experience flying airplanes, I would be almost impossible to please with that kind of ride. So is it, does that carry over to people who have played these, these games upon which these lands are based? Are they going to be disappointed that they can't, uh, you know, dictate the outcome to some degree and it, it looks to me yeah. certainly in the walk around part it looks like they went to great lengths to make sure that the you know the the mini games and things are yeah, they're yeah. not afterthoughts that were glued on mm-hmm. that was a fundamental part of of what they built which i think is really important i think i think the difference there will shine through as opposed to sorcerers of the magic kingdom or something where they tried to do a retrofit you know because there's just constraints there that are going to limit how much uh, you can build that responds to what guests do. I, I apologize. I watched the wrong video. I watched I watched the video for the new Atari Twenty Six Hundred Land opening at Six Flags <laughs> Tokyo. Uh, we'll talk about ball, that next show. The pitfall ride it, looks awesome, but the uh, ET ride is the uh, ET in the bottom sucks. of a dumpster. <laughs> 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 the landfall now, I, land. <laughs> my my takeaway from this video uh, was it kind of took me back to the first time I went to Hogsmeade. Mm-hmm. And I remember going there and thinking that Universal just out Disney Disney. Yeah. And I still I remember going back to my hotel room that night and I would call in my dad. We were at Pop Central. I mean, I literally can just remember being in the stairwell talking to my dad about being how how cool it was. And we were just brainstorming at that point. And I was like, the only thing Disney could do to top what they did over there was something with Star Wars. And lo and behold, years later, that's that's what they counterpunched with. Yeah. After watching this video. I, I'm at that point again that they out Disney Disney and that's post you know Galaxy's Edge that's post Pandora uh, they just the energy in this entire land yep. uh, is amazing like you get you can't take your eyes off of anything it's kinetics uh, overload for sure right, in it, a good it, way Disney was trying to prop up Galaxy's Edge like you're gonna want to you know go in this area and go do this and go do that. And granted, I loved galaxy's edge. Don't get me wrong, but I I felt like everything was built around those two rides. And outside of that, if I wanted to spend time in the area, I could, but I didn't have to, I watched this video. I'm like, I've got to spend hours in uh, super Mario world and do all of this stuff. Like they just, the time and effort and thought that they put into the smallest little thing blew my mind. Um, and and, you know, he's walking past things and I'm just like, no, 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 stop. I want to see what that is. And, and and I loved how he's like, well, I'm going to keep that one a surprise and we're going to keep this a surprise. I, there has to be a thousand different surprises throughout that area that, um, that 
I just I, I I I can't wait to do it. I can't wait to experience it. I am a Nintendo kid. I think the thing that's genius with Universal going all in on this platform is while yeah, I'm 41, I'm a Nintendo kid, but guess what my kids, my 8 and my 13-year-old asked and begged for for Christmas this year? Nintendo products, all built around Mario. So they've got the old generation, wow. but with the products that they're putting out with the Nintendo Switch and, you know, th- there's not a kid that doesn't play Mario Kart right now. Like that that is as important to the young generation as it was us, you know, 20 <laughs> 25 years ago. So they're they're building areas of parks that are just going to be timeless to for, for maybe not timeless, but they're going to be relevant for decades. Uh, and, yeah, this and is I, definitely a timeless product. There's no question about that. Yeah. I'm just interested. You know, at, at this point it's like, what does Disney do to counter this? Like it, it, I love how universal is just stepping their game up. Disney knows this is coming to Orlando. Like they've been warned. This is coming. You guys mm-hmm. better be ready. Uh, they've got time to plan for it. What will they counterpunch with this time? Uh, so I, I, my concern is exactly what you just said is that I think that the pressure of trying to go tit for tat with your competitor leads to bad decisions. A lot of the time, you know, it's like when, when these ideas happen organic, there's a big difference between a meeting, which like, Holy crap, we need to counter what universal is doing versus Holy crap. We have this wonderful idea of what we can build out of Nintendo. Um, and, and, the, and the thought of like forcing something, I agree with you. Yeah. But it takes Disney six years to build something. Yep. So I don't yeah. know that that you're going to get rush jobs on anything. Um, yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Just I mean, because it takes I, them I a long time doesn't that. mean it isn't rushed. I mean, that's <laughs> well, the sad thing. Well, I, I, mean, I guess I mean they're gonna they're gonna counter with something. They just need to put more thought and effort into it than saying, "Hey, let's build a Tron roller coaster in this blank space of land." Like that's that's not going to work when the the competition down the street are opening areas of parks that are that are like this. By blank space of land, you mean uh, over the berm behind the speedway? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Worst possible place they could have put that attraction. So let, let's look at uh, the kind of drill down and take the Nintendo aspect out of this. That you're going to get an appeal to this because of the uh, intellectual property that is not movie-based. You're welcome, Josh. Uh, that it's tied to. Um, that this is a very... So you're, you're taking a two-dimensional product, uh, a sometimes 16-bit graphic product. 8-bit. 8-bit, uh, uh, eight, eight sorry, you're right. And and trying to bring it to, to real life. The... The level of detail available in that 8-bit product is not really – it's kind of like the, the Toy Story Land conceit where you can only get so much detail out of something like that. And they did an amazing job with it. But you're not going to get like rich architecture with it. You are going to get very familiar uh, right. uh, icons I, I would, here. You're getting a facade yeah. here. Um, that they did an exceptional job with, but you are constrained by the reality of the intellectual property that you're that you're building in. It, I think it's a blessing and a curse. Um, yeah, and this is sort of why I mentioned the primitive nature of computer technology back when Nintendo got into the video game business. So mm-hmm. Donkey Kong, for example, was an eight bit game, and the only thing that they could pull off were these very primitive shapes. You, it they let the mind fill in a lot. Um, but to this day, 
I, I live in a relatively small town in the Midwest, and there is at least two retro video game bars here where you can go in and, and play Donkey Kong, and there might be a line for it on a Friday night because that game is fun. <laughs> and there are countless games that are you know much more advanced in terms of technology. They use much more processing power. They have much higher resolution graphics, and those nobody plays those games anymore because the 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 value proposition that they had was that they had good graphics. But the value proposition of Donkey Kong is that it was fun, and I think. I think you're right. There's sort of a a paradox in creating a themed land around a notoriously simplistic design because mm-hmm. how do you like how do you kick ass at building that? You know what I mean? It's, it reminds me of a a quote from Steven Tyler that it costs a lot of money to look this cheap, mm-hmm. and it's like it's the same thing. You know, we've seen have, so many examples of that in theme parks. That- no doubt. Like Chester and Hester's would be a good example of Chester that, right? Chester and Hester's, and I mean, Toy Story Land is another good is another example of it. Uh, this, to me, has the vibe of Toon Lagoon and Islands of Adventure. Um, yeah, similar. But, but what it's doing as well, and what we look at when we're looking at uh, known intellectual properties, is that people have expectations of what to see in a Correct. land like that. And so you better not be as, wrong. As long as those are satisfied, as long as yep. you see the the Mario characters walking around, as long as you see the turtles somewhere, the coins somewhere, um, mm-hmm. you can satisfy that. Even if it's not, you know, this is Super Mario Brothers 3, Land 3-1, you know, things like that. You're not going right. to necessarily get a shot-for-shot thing like, say, Hogsmeade or Diagon Alley, but you're going to see those levels of familiarity. And if you can recognize what those needs are, um, this is a debate that has come up a lot in the last few years of recreating exactly you know a movie set effectively versus what people want to see and there are pros and cons to both and you need to pick the right or you need to make the right choices for whatever intellectual property you're leaning into and as far as i can tell here uh the facade itself looks like it did that and where i think you're really gonna make or break this land though is how well they pull off mario kart because there are i don't know that there is a more family friendly uh uh video game in history than Mario Kart, right? So Probably not. So the the pressure on that to be great is enormous. Before we go into the specific direction, I want to comment on one thing you said about how they they got the land right. Mm -hmm. And I I think this is what 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 fascinates me as someone who considers what it might have been like to be on the design team for this. While it is very simple, and and we would look at something and go, well, it's simple, so it's easy to build. But I I think it also has a very low margin of error. Because when you're building an entire land based on these extremely simple geometric shapes, if you're wrong by even a little bit, it's not going to work. You know, and one thing I saw in the video that just it resonated with me. And for anyone who hasn't watched it, I, I highly recommend that you do. Um, there's the coin on top of the sm- bricks you can smash, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're they're rotating. Now, in the game, they rotate. And it looked to me like the RPM at which they rotate was nailed. And that's, that's a seemingly small thing, but I think that you know our mm-hmm. lizard brains would look at that, and if those things were moving at the wrong pace, it would just be wrong. It just yep. it, it, You wouldn't look at it and go, it's wrong. It just wouldn't resonate with you. But there's something about producing a three-dimensional real-world version of this and getting it so right that it, mm-hmm. it 
it's almost disorienting and confusing. And it feels like you're in that land. That is an incredible experience to be able to give someone. And I, it, from, again, from the video, which certainly is the best of the best it's edited, you know, nothing that broke was in the scene, you know, but based on what I saw, uh, it was a masterful execution of, yeah. of what they were going for. And, and Tim, you talk about them that had to pull off Mario Kart and granted, we have not seen any ride footage of that, but Everything we've seen from the queue, there, there's there's nothing there to make me think that they didn't spend so a, a ton of money on this yep. attraction. And yeah. if the queue is that good, I can only imagine what they ended up doing inside that show building. Yeah. We, we know that they're capable of great things, uh, both inside this land and uh, outside of this land. So it's – I'm looking forward to seeing ride footage of it. Uh, I wish it was under construction in Florida right now. Mm-hmm. Um because I don't know when I'll be back to Japan to, to see it. But one of the comments I made to Maria is, is that if we go back to Japan prior to this opening in Florida, we were absolutely going up there. Whereas historically, you know, the, the one trip that I been, went there, I didn't go up to uh, Universal. So Is it is it well, true that the it, hardest part of planning a trip to Japan for you is carving out the eight hours afterward it's going to take to record the podcast about it? Yeah, yeah pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Well, luckily you'll get the Hollywood version before Florida, so that's true. Yeah, you, you won't have to wait too too long. That that area is cleared and they're ready to ready to roll on it. But uh, you know, at, at this point, Disney, like like I mentioned before, Disney knows this is coming to Orlando. Mm-hmm. Like it's and if anything, the delay in Epic Universe has given them a little bit more time to maybe regroup their thoughts and plan of action moving forward. What is there that Disney can do and build? That would be the equivalent of something like this, uh, and next gen pro- plus. <laughs> Jerk buzzword uh, <laughs> buzzword elite. Uh, something with wish in the title. Synergy um, wish dream. Ooh, I had an elite synergy up. My bad. With a Walt statue at the exit. Yeah. Economies um, of synergy land. <laughs> <laughs> we know Disney. We know Disney has put a lot of projects on delay or yeah. outright canceled. You know. Would would you? Uh, you know, they haven't outright canceled some of the stuff, like the Mary Poppins and this and that. You know, we we assume that it's done and not happening. But say those are still on the board, and you were making the the this decision and imaginary you know, on next projects. Would you scrap everything that hasn't been started yet? Because all of those things seem to be pretty much standalone attractions or extensions of an area that's already built within the park. Yeah. Would you would you scrap all that stuff and? reconsider and rethink an area does this maybe put something like a full-scale radiator springs back on the board uh, the Mo- monstropolis that we've ta- you know heard rumors about for years would this be a is that something that we think is worthy enough to build does it have the cachet and the, and the power that nintendo uh and the mario franchises have to, to actually be a decent um opponent for for what's going to be opening up right down the street i would like something new for Florida, something that, yes, on the scale of Radiator Springs Racers, but a new concept. Because mm. if you redo Radiator Springs Racers in Florida, while an excellent attraction, you're not necessarily competing with this. And even though you've got car-based attraction, car-based attraction, uh, a highly themed environment versus highly themed environment, um, it's something that has been done uh, uh, stateside before. And... For me, I, I kind of subscribe to the theory, and we get into this in listener questions as well, that there needs to be some level of differences here. And Universal doesn't really subscribe to that theory. If they have something that's a hit, they put it everywhere. Um, 
where what I would like to see Disney do is rather than pulling from other places is create that great new experience that is exclusive to uh, to Florida. And you know what? That very well may be the Guardians of the Galaxy coaster. We don't know. But uh, to your point, Ben, about some of the projects that have been stalled, if not outright canceled, they eventually will have to ramp up uh, new projects again. And not just the stuff that we already know is going to happen, like Ratatouille, Tron, and Guardians. Um, I think that at this point, they don't know what it is. What they should be doing is compiling those ideas so that when they are ready to start building those, when they are ready to respond to Epic Universe, because they will have to respond to it, that they have answers for not just a single attraction, but answers for all four parks. And I don't know what they may, what those may be, whether it is pulling existing attractions, which isn't necessarily what I want from elsewhere on Disney property or other Disney properties rather, uh, or creating something from whole cloth. Um, any of those could work, but as a direct response to Nintendo as a, as an entity, there isn't, there isn't one that's a comparable video game product. Um, I just, I just don't see it. Uh, cause I assume rolled into Nintendo. Grand Theft Auto. Is, uh, rolled into Nintendo is Pokemon, right? Like, isn't that owned by the same? Yeah. Same uh, group, so Nintendo owns about a third of, uh, I think, I think it's called Nanantech or Nanantech, something like that. I don't so, think they own all of it, but they own a big piece. I'm mentioning this because I was educated on Pokemon uh, within the last month uh, by uh, by Jalen Harvey, and the it was he threw it out there that Pokemon should go into Animal Kingdom or should have begun into Animal Kingdom instead of Avatar, and I I kind of I dismissed it as all right it's a, a ridiculous ass, but I was admittedly uh, ignorant to kind of the the stories of Pokemon the. Um, uh, uh, where it would tie a into creature component to it for sure. It has a creature component to it, but even beyond that, I guess uh, it has a nature component to it. Yeah. Where and, and much in the same way that Pandora has has that. Where if you're going to just look at the the movie itself, you could say, all right, this is a movie about war, and what does it have to do with the animal kingdom? But they took the components that were relevant, and Jalen educated me on that and just said th- these are the components that would be relevant to it. Um, there are ways and things from a uh, family-friendly appropriateness standpoint that Disney has in their uh, their wheelhouse that they could put in every park that would satisfy the uh, a response to this. Um, it's whether they choose to or not, and they could also look at it as saying, "Hey, we've got three attractions under." Uh, under construction right now, that's our response to it. It's a preemptive response. They're reacting to us. We don't need to respond. Um, but we like the idea of theme park wars. We like the idea of the two companies going back and forth because it means better products for us as a consumer. Absolutely. So, um, I well, welcome this. Uh, I welcome Disney trying to respond to it. Um, whatever it brings for our entertainment dollar, I am in favor of. Part of me really hopes that when you leave the uh, load platform on Mario Kart, you turn the corner and the rock shows up and says there's a uh, uh, a witness on your cart and you get pulled into a party <laughs> bus. And uh, oh, <laughs> you know, they, they don't have Fast and the Furious, I don't think, out there yet. So it's a good way to just combine both. Get, get, get that whole uh, supercharged experience in the Mario Kart attraction. <laughs> That'll be badass. Josh, have you ever watched video on Fast and Furious, the, uh, the ride? 
Yeah, no, I think it's hilarious that a franchise <laughs> about race cars is the setting for it in the ride is a bus. <laughs> How amazing would that be if you That's do a if, myth. Mario, <laughs> if Mario Kart turns the corner and it's just that that projection room from the uh, supercharged attraction and and that's all it is. You just stay you stay still, you don't move. Everything happens around you on video screens. That'd be awesome. You drive the go-kart into like the back of a semi and then it just parks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have anything else on uh, Super Mario World? No, I think we're off to a good start on our short show. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> good half hour into it. Uh, so we do have uh, listener questions. We called for them on Facebook. We did get a couple of uh, questions emailed to us uh, from both Bruce McClintock and Matt Kaufman. So Those I'm will gonna, be addressed I'm gonna, in the future. I'm going to interrupt for a second. I just, wanna, I just want to say something real quick. We, we do have awesome listeners. Now, we I do. know so, some of them write in and kiss our ass, which I also appreciate. <laughs> but I, I just I, I kind of want to thank them because the fact is – it helps so much when we get feedback and, and people have thoughts and ideas that we can talk about. For me, that makes the enjoyment of doing this and the ease of doing it go up by about a billion. So keep it coming. And, and thank you for taking the time to figure out how the heck to email us and doing it. Um, <laughs> I, I think it really does contribute a lot. And I just want to say something that uh, every time you say McClintock's name, I can't not think Great of name. like a joke or something to come along with it. So Please keep emailing us. So, so Tim has to keep saying your name. It's fabulous. It is a great name. They uh, uh, so Bruce and Matt uh, sent in two great questions, um, and whether it's two separate shows or we combine them into a single show, uh, it'll definitely be dedicated as that will be the focus of the of the that show. Yeah, and uh, we'll do that in the new year uh, at some point. So um, stand stand by for that. But uh, we have some kind of quicker hit questions that came to us on the Facebooks. And I'm going to pull that up. Uh, we called about, called for questions about a week ago, and we'll just kind of go through them. So uh, first one is not really a question. It's a comment from Elaine Benner. Uh, at this point in 2020, all of my questions are leaning towards the metaphysical and philosophical. I think that's where Josh chimes in here. Uh, <laughs> do you have any uh, uh, philosophizing? Uh, is that the entirety of the question? Or do yeah, I get that's some it. more? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> It got a thumbs up. All right. Uh, up for me, so that doesn't count. All right. Well, <laughs> keep, keep philosophizing. I support yep. this. Uh, so the next one comes to us from Dave Kell. Uh, what would you use the harmonious barges for in the daytime? How would you mask them? Or what kind of daytime show would work for World Showcase? Titanic-themed uh, <laughs> attraction where we sing them and put us out of our misery. <laughs> ben, you had, you had uh, seemingly an insight on this. It was a chance for you to ruin Epcot again. So do you want to jump in here? Apparently, I, Ep the, Ben has got insiders running Epcot for him now. <laughs> <laughs> you got a mole on the inside just he doing does. your dirty work for you. I was going to put uh, simulated sunsets on them, so the animals on the savanna. Oh, uh, that's good. That's a good idea. For the nighttime safari around World <laughs> Showcase. Those things are massive. Yeah, I think maybe before we get into the weeds on this, before we do our next short 38-minute bit, <laughs> we should, for anyone who hasn't heard, um, so these floats were revealed, or at least a couple of them were. Um, I think, am I speaking for you guys fairly when I say that they're a bit taller than we would consider anything that has the word platform in its description? A yeah, switch. I think that's accurate. Yeah. <laughs> they're they the Guardian's building of platforms. <laughs> uh, they really are. Because platform to me always about sort they of a little flat They do block the view of the Guardian's building from, from certain angles. <laughs> they are, God, they are big. They should paint them it, blue. That's what they should do. Can we match the sky with the LEDs on there? If you do that, then... <laughs> So I've heard some conflicting information about these things. One thing I heard was that they would, I mean, they're barges, which yep. 
as far as I know, and I haven't looked up the definition of this, I always thought that was a floaty thing you could tow into and out of yeah, usually. position, right? <laughs> uh, I, but, but now, keep I, in mind, Josh, this is a company who didn't move the backlot tour vehicles for nine months, and those things have wheels and an engine. So that, That's a fair point. <laughs> that is a fair point. So the, the two conflicting schools of thought here is that they'll be treated similarly to the way that the Illuminations floats were, that they'd be tugged out of position you know, after yeah. the park closes, prepped, and then put back into position for the next show, um, which has two advantages that I can think of. The first is that it would allow the loading of pyrotechnics in an environment that is ostensibly safer than being out in the middle of a guest area where it's surrounded by water. And secondly, it takes what is really kind of an eyesore and it gets it out of the way during the not, daytime. Not kind hours. of an eyesore. It is yeah, objectively an eyesore. eyesore. <laughs> I mean, the Illuminations floats were a a, a a sight to see compared to these monstrosities. How many are there? Five is what I believe the number is, but I could, I don't know There's why. one very offensive one. Yeah. It looks like, imagine a four-year-old drew a picture of a whale. That's what it looks like. It has a big hump on the front and then it gets, it tapers down and then it sort of gets tall again toward the back. And, and it's they only had a Sharpie to do it. Yeah, exactly. whale. This is not a good artist, four-year-old, by the way. Um, you know, the thing that I don't know that I think would be super helpful at trying to read the tea leaves on whether or not these things are going to hide is what is the pyrotechnic component of them? Because if it's primarily a lighting fixture and a laser fixture or something that doesn't have any, you know, highly flammable gas or fireworks on it, then maybe they're going to stay there. But I still think, but I do think that if it's a pyro platform, um, I don't think they're going to stay there because I don't think they're going to do that loading process You're probably right. where they would have to be. So I'm hopeful that... Uh, you know, and, and let's face it, I can say that when I used to see them tow the barges out, that kind of, if I was tired at, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon, getting the sun beat down on me, seeing those get pulled out there would give me a little bit of a second win. It's like, okay, I'm going to stay for illuminations. You know, they're getting it ready. I'm excited for this. So I, I think there's a lot of advantages to those things not being permanently parked there. It's like... I was actually driving a few towns over today, and I saw a beautiful home. This had to be a six or seven million dollar house, I would guess. You were casing and a joint. Nine hundred yards away from it was a double wide trailer that had two trucks with no wheels on it sitting in the backyard, and I'm like, man, you know, <laughs> that really doesn't do anything for the sight lines around here, and that's that's really how I feel about those floats. Is that it? It would really be a shame to how much beauty and and niceness there is, even to this day, walking around Epcot to to have those there. At two o'clock, the center barge will be showing the Tom Hanks and classic Toy Story 2. Three. At five o'clock, stick around for Chris Pratt and Zoe Zaldana in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Three Men and a Baby will be shown at 6.15. <laughs> Refer to your times guide. So, uh, to, to Josh's point, um, we don't necessarily know definitively that these are going to stay out, but the show doesn't have an announced start date yet. The daytime version of the show, which they did announce, was was going to be Fountains. Um, they haven't announced a start date for that either. So right now, it is sitting out uh, on World Showcase Lagoon with no real directive. Um, yeah. What I have read is that uh, while it could be pulled in and out, um, that on a daily basis, there are issues due to size where there could be days where it is more difficult to pull it in and out. 
Um, I could live with that. If on occasion you've got to leave it there, fine. But if that's a permanent fixture, that is a massive decrease in the beauty of that park. Oh, absolutely. Was that that official uh, from Disney talking about the water fountain features to kind of disguise that? Or was that they they put concept art out? So, I mean, a daytime show. If they're doing that, that to me, I'm assuming that those are staying out there. Exactly. So. But the other component. I, I, did, I honestly of it, didn't know about the daytime show, so that's that's a heartbreaker. <laughs> so a, a component of that, though, is does does that show require the biggest of these barges? Is that something that where they're going to just have fountains going all day, and are you going to get noise pollution from that um, beyond the visual intrusion? Are you going to get that as well? Uh, there's there's a multitude of questions that remain unanswered here, but. If the solution is to have these massive barges on the water, obscuring the view of the World Showcase pavilions, congratulations, you've already fucked up Future World, now we can fuck up World Showcase some more. It really is, I mean, I've said it before uh, within the last few years, but Epcot is the worst stateside park. And thank God for Disney Studios Paris, because otherwise it would be the worst uh, Disney park in the world right now. I'm kind of starting to love this park. And it's right up Ben's alley. Um now we we're, we're shitting on a show that hasn't debuted yet. Um, to be to let, cancel that though, algebraically, I praised Epcot Forever before I saw it, so I, yeah, I, have, a, I have a credit in the bank. Bought the shirt. Uh, so, Damn you! <laughs> so we have. Let's let's assume that what we've heard about Harmonious is true. That it is going to be the. Uh, technological marvel that it is going to be the best thing that they have done from from the term or from terms of a uh, nighttime show and whether it's appropriate for the park let's take that out of it and let's just assume that it does impress to that level okay it, is it worth that trade off for a 20 minute show at night to have 12 hours of visual intrusion on world showcase or would you prefer to have a a, a dialed back show that doesn't have these things. I go back to that. That doesn't seem like a realistic dichotomy to me. Okay. Um, if it's, if it is, if this is what is necessary in order to produce the best nighttime show that exists in the world, then I think we're talking about a different conversation and we have okay. to be more tolerant. But uh-huh. if it is a lateral move from illuminations, then this was a terrible choice. Sure. And I, I just, I, I just have a heart. They don't, these things, you really have to look at them to appreciate the angst in my voice, I think, because <laughs> it's not just that they're big. There are lots of big things in Epcot that don't look like gar- garbage. These look, there are a lot of big things in Epcot that do look like garbage too, but that's true. These look like something that you would see if you snuck backstage at a kiss concert. Mm-hmm. That's the best yeah, way like that I could describe them. Yeah. It, it is not attractive. Now, I Eat guess the beat is going to perform on these. That's what they're going to do during the day. <laughs> the they're going to put they're going to eliminate American <laughs> Gardens Theater and they're going to do concerts on these of like cover bands. Ladies and gentlemen, like- <laughs> smash mouth. <laughs> Somebody yeah. once told me. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I'm changing my answer. There's no scenario in which these are OK. <laughs> I, I just don't understand it. Like with across across the, the country, you've got World of Color. Yep. And yeah. like it's no, really cool, no and, it, and, and I love. It. I've seen it a thousand times, and I love it every single time. And except honestly, for the black I, and white I, version of World of Color, that one sucked, and that's not even well, a joke. They did one. 
Yeah. And, and strategy. To me, the best part of World of Color is the, the fountains. It's not the screens. It's not, you know, yeah. half the time you can't really see what they're shooting on those screens or anything. It's it's the colors, it's the lights, and it's the water fountains. And they could have done something like that. Combine that with a, a bigger fire uh, fireworks show, something that they couldn't do at Disneyland. You know, add the water and the pyro together. And you don't need screens. You don't need anything. You just need the... You know, and and you got a much larger playing field to work with with that water fountain show. Uh, you know, it's the same thing with Las Vegas. Ask anybody who's been there. You know, they they yeah, never get Blasio tired of seeing show. the fountains at the Bellagio. Yeah. You could have done something amazing on that lagoon that would have kept every sightline in place that that people love. Um, you could do this show without with keeping those sightlines in place. Yeah. Create a lock yeah. system that works. Yeah. I mean, I, and I I know that this is maybe the least useful comment to inject at this point, but that's what we do here. Illuminations was grand. I mean, it was a truly epic show, which is remarkable considering the constrained space that they had, because you you know, it's easy. You you know, you stroll up to, to the lagoon and go, wow, this is a big area, but it's really not for pyrotechnics. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's no fallout area. If you go to magic kingdom or uh, you know, the studios for sure, um, Every once in a while, if you look carefully while you're in, in a queue for an attraction, you'll see a sign that says fireworks followed area, you know, no admission, you know, during these hours. Like th- a lot of those shows have, you know, tremendous effort put into the area around it to make sure that people are not in the place where all that shit lands. Right. And, you know, at Epcot, it's it's an up and down kind of deal. You can't just shoot things on a you know trajectory toward a safe area. So there's a lot of constraints there that they managed to work with, and they still created one of the most epic nighttime shows in the world. And it tied in perfectly with the environment in which it is set. Yep. So to me, it's, it, it's academically interesting to say, you know, your question, if this is the best nighttime show ever that they've made, it's like, okay, but they're not really respecting the setting that it's in. So that as a thought exercise, even that gets really hard for me to do in light of the fact that we already had illuminations, Mm -hmm. you know, the fact is, you know, when your girlfriend dumps you and you got to go pick out the next girl, uh, you want her to be as pretty as the last one was. And Josh, do you have binders full of women? Just curious. (laughs) I don't, that is uh, frowned upon, (laughs) but you know, illuminations is a hard act to follow. And that show pulled it off without destroying the daytime sightlines. So I, I really think, especially coming off the heels of, of Epcot forever, we're, I think it's completely fair for us to look at this and go, what the hell are they doing? Because the last show that they did sucked and (laughs) the show before that was awesome and didn't need a monstrosity in order to get it done. So what the hell are they doing now? If you think that last show sucked, wait till you see the new one that's had 75% of its budget cut in the last year. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah I'm uh, nervous. <laughs> I mean, we got in real time uh, Josh and my anger towards Epcot forever, but at least that was a temporary show. <laughs> yeah. We knew that this is going to be character integration. We knew that it was not going to be perhaps as true to the Epcot that we have grown to love. But if the show itself is great, then, all right, you can accept that for what it is. You've got that expectation going into it. At no point were we told that this was also going to uh, ruin the daily ambiance of World Showcase. So, yes, they are doing a daytime fountain show, and the fountains may obscure the views across World Showcase. Um, I would prefer fountains over a big uh, black whale in the middle of World Showcase, but I think my preference would be nothing. 
Um, I, I do like the idea of some sort of lock system if they have to stay out on World Showcase. And before anybody says that that's uh, not possible to do, uh, it's definitely possible to do. Um, <laughs> the technology has existed on a much larger scale uh, to shrink while we complain about the size of this. Uh, if you can raise and lower cruise ships, you can raise and lower this barge. Um, that's not really a, a, an issue. It's just a matter of whether or not they want to do it, whether they care about sightlines in Epcot at all. And recent history has shown that they probably don't. So after the after after the fifth time, Zootopia is shown on that screen during that day, you won't even notice those barges are even there. <laughs> uh, so why don't we move away from from that question, because we're just going to get angry about Epcot, and move on to one that's uh, insulting to me. Uh, this one comes from Kevin Caton. How big has Tim's right forearm gotten since the release of the Magic of Disney's Animal Kingdom on Disney Plus? Uh, first and foremost, I resent the implication that I'm not ambidextrous. Um, but anyway, uh, Ben, I resent the implication that he's capable of building muscle. (laughs) That's also true. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty jacked, but anyway, uh, Ben, I think you've seen the show, right? I have. What are your thoughts? I enjoy it very much. Uh, it's exactly the kind of content I want to see on Disney plus. Uh, you know, it goes back to what I've talked about in the past on, you know, why I wanted to work at Disney. I wanted to see behind the scenes. I wanted to see how the magic happened. I wanted to see how things worked. And that's not limited to just like, you know, what happens behind the scenes at Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, I'm interested in the day-to-day operations of a theme park and especially one as uh, elaborate and as unique as Animal Kingdom. And to, to be able to go behind those walls and see how they take care of the animals and treat them and, the, how the cast members just go about their daily business is a, it's a very entertaining concept to me. And so, yeah, I, I very much enjoy this show. It's, this is uh, a smart show. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen it, but um, you know, for those who might not have been paying attention at the time when Disney first talked about having an animal based park, it got a lot of strong reaction from uh, a lot of animal rights groups. And there was this question, you know, of, of, is Disney a company that is, you know, into the theme park industry? Are they capable of and interested in doing a good job of caring for these animals? And I suspect, although I don't have any direct knowledge of this, that they've probably done a very good job of that from the beginning. But it's one of those things where I feel like it's probably a company spending a whole lot of money and time and effort to do things that are truly good and that no one ever sees. So this is a bit of a way to bring some public, you know, maybe get some ROI in the public eye, um, you know, for this investment that they've made and what is truly a a noble and good thing. I don't know what the split was, and it very well may have been 50-50, but there was a mandate from the outset that the back of the house needed to be a certain percentage of the front of the house. And knowing what Disney spends on front of the house components, um, that the animal care facilities had to be great here. And the... The component of the show that is enjoyable is also something um, that I think some people might be a turnoff for some people is that it is all about the zoological aspect of things. Uh, it's not the uh, technical side of the theme park aspect of it, but uh, so it might not be for everybody, but it is very much in line with the show The Zoo on Animal Planet, which has touched on San Diego Zoo, Bronx Zoo, and many others around the country. Um, 
those types of shows where you're talking about the animal care, you're talking about uh, some procedures for animals, some uh, uh, rehabilitation for animals that they brought in that aren't necessarily ever going to be on display in the park. Um, it's those types of things. So if you have an interest in that aspect of it, it is definitely worth watching. Uh, it's narrated by Josh Gad. Um, it's one of those like the uh, Imagineering story where you get that peek behind the curtain and it's in a different way. It's not uh, an Imagineering side of things, but it still shows uh, the uh, the backside that we all like to see. So, you know, it, it's unfortunately I, I, I wish cast members got paid a whole lot more and had mm-hmm. much uh, were treated much more fairly because. I don't know about you, but like seeing something like this is, is very cool on the animal side. And it is cool to see the cast member side. But, you know, if MTV can run the real world for like 40 years, I think it would be great to see something with cast members, just how they how they go about the daily operations of a theme park. I think there's an audience out there that would love <laughs> to see something like that to see. The, the sad part is that you see so much crap that they have to put up with. And again, yeah. they get paid so poorly that I don't think they would be able to you know uh be able to freely talk about a lot of the issues that that they might have in their real life if we wanted to get to know these people truly you know the ones that we see that disney puts on any kind of content that they create like this are those cast members are like spokespeople for the company more than the one day at disney shorts touch on it a little bit but not to the extent that you're asking right and and if they were to say anything negative they wouldn't be on that show uh (laughs) they, they wouldn't do anything around them so they're this is the kind of content, like I said, I want to see the Imagineering story. That's the kind of content I want to see. Uh, hopefully this is, you know, just the beginning. Obviously, we, we were just shown the whole slate of all the new Star Wars and all the Marvel content to come in our way. But I do hope there's uh, an avenue for theme park fans to get more content like this uh, at some point on on that platform. I just want to point out that uh, <laughs> your uh, analogy to the real world was an interesting choice because after really getting to know those people, now imagine you're running a company and being faced with the prospect of considering whether or not you want your employees to be seen in that same light. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I don't think this is going to get off the ground. I, I, tell, you, I tell you what, the, though, the reason it, you make the show about animals is because they're not assholes. If they made a college program real world, though, and had Except cameras for zebras, in those, dicks. If, I would watch that. If they had cameras in those, yeah. <laughs> in those apartments, uh, that, it, that would be must-watch TV. Well, it's going it, to have to be on Hulu and not Disney+. Plus. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> the only member of this cast who is also on the Kingdom cast. Let me assure you that that subset of the Disney community is small. <laughs> We 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 made a legit effort to serve that part of the market, and let me tell you, we got uh, plenty of feedback from people who weren't a part of it. People, <laughs> people, innocent Disney mom bloggers stumbling into the Kingdom Cast Facebook Facebook group was one of the funniest things that I've ever seen in my life. We would it literally is, it do is it. unbelievable when that happens. It's great. Like I would usually, I would send Ron a message. I'm like, so what do you think? Thirty minutes, and <laughs> just to, to see how long it took them to realize the error of their ways. Yep. What did I walk into? <laughs> I, I I wonder that sometimes. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, I'm going to go back to uh, Ellen Benner. She did actually have a question. Um, okay, I wrestled up a question for you guys. I just started reading Boundless Realm, Deep Explorations Inside Disney's Haunted Mansion by Fox Nolte. Are there any books, old or new, that you recommend reading if you enjoy the history of the parks? Mm, uh, yes. I have my list, but I'm sure you guys do as well. I'm pulling it up now. 
Um, the one I go through my quick hits then, uh, one that I've mentioned countless times in the show, uh, the making of Disney's animal kingdom by Melody Malmberg, Mel- Melody Malmberg. And I'm probably butchering the last name. It's actually Joe Rody- Joe Rody's wife. I can't speak tonight. Um, that's a great book. If you're a fan of the animal kingdom, um, a uh, friend of the show, uh, Jeff Humbucker, uh, we'll go with that name. Uh, uh Uh, co-wrote with Raleigh Crump. It's kind of a cute story, which is uh, a great read uh, and a a light read too. Um, They're, they're kind of broken out into short stories and uh, you can, you know, pick it up at any point without really having to uh, feel that you need to go in like a chronological order. Um, We badmouth them a lot here, but I actually really enjoyed Bob Iger's book. It's not a uh, theme park book, but uh, the ride of a lifetime uh, was again, an enjoyable read and kind of gives you some insight there. Uh, and then there's just countless books on Imagineering. Jeff Curdy did a bunch. Jason Sorrell did a bunch. Um, uh, the biographies of uh, Pick, Your, Pick Your Poison, Kevin Rafferty, Magic Journey. Um, uh, Marty Sklar did, I feel like, half a dozen. The Imagineering Field Guides. Uh, From Dreamer to Dreamfinder by Rob Schneider. Rob Schneider. Ron Schneider. Uh, Rob Schneider also wrote one that was about copy machines. Uh, and then... Deuce Bigelow, um, male Dreamfinder. <laughs> Yes. And then uh, any of the Bamboo Forest publishing books, uh, if you're looking for novels as well, that are kind of uh, into the Disney world, but uh, probably more for that Kingdom Cast type audience. Yeah. But those are kind of the quick hits that I've got. I got a couple more straight ones. Sure. Um, theme Park Design is a book by a guy named Steve Alcorn. He was actually a ride systems engineer and was pretty instrumental in building a lot of the attractions at Epcot. And okay. the the setting for the book or the way he goes about it is he really, it's almost like a time machine. He goes back to pre opening of Epcot and he talks about the problems that they had with specific attractions and he does a very good job of describing them. So you know exactly what attract, you know, you can visualize the scene in these rides Uh, and he talks about how they solve the technical problems that they encountered and actually got these things to work. He talks about some of the things that, um, you know, they would have done differently if they could have had a chance to do it over again, which is certainly uh, not reminiscent because this was before that. But if you think about something like the Yeti, for example, um, where uh, Bobby, uh, Bob Gurr was sort of famous for off the record saying that their approach to doing that was really wrong because they were bragging about how it had these actuators from a 737 when what they should have been bragging about is that they built the thing to be lightweight so that it could be durable. You know, and those sorts of lessons are always very interesting to me because they they reveal the imperfections in the design and the growth that happened from their attempts to to build these massive projects. So that's a really cool book. Um, I think it's only available on the iBook store. Um, actually I take that back. It's available on iBooks and on Amazon, but it's only available on ebook, but there's lots of videos and animations and stuff, uh, particularly in the iBooks one. So I would definitely check that out. Uh, and the other book I thought was worth reading, uh, it was by Tony Baxter and it's, I think the title of it is first of the second generation of Walt Disney Imagineers. Um, which is interesting because one of my fascinations with Disney as well as other companies is, understanding how these companies moved on after the loss of their very charismatic founders. Um, and this touches on that. So it's less technical, but more, um, but still really deals with sort of the corporate culture, the philosophy of the organization and how a lot of these people were shaped by Walt and how they went on to, uh, you know, spread that to their, 
you know, the people who are junior to them and hopefully what the company's doing to keep that sort of spirit alive within it now. Uh, Absolutely. A couple on my list, uh, a couple coffee table books. There's the uh, Mark Davis in my own words, uh, two book anthology set. That's yeah. uh, you can kill a man if you hit him over the head with it. It's yeah. so uh, big and thick. That doesn't uh, sound cheap. I, I enjoy that one. There's also in uh, lieu of cinder blocks by multiple copies of that book. <laughs> Uh, one of my favorites in my collection is is the old. It's just called Imagineering. It's the uh, yep. from 1996. It has uh, uh, Sorcerer Mickey on the cover. Uh, if you can come across that one, I know that one's gotten quite expensive over the years. But uh, again, just if you love concept art and, and just going through the whole creation of an attractions, uh, that book's great. Uh, I'll go outside Disney a little bit. I, I really enjoyed the book J Bangs about Jay Stein and the creation of Universal. Uh, the Universal Orlando Resort. Uh, it it does get into a lot of the competition that was going on at that time between Disney and Eisner. Would be great if Ben just said, "I like angels and demons." You know, <laughs> start to name random I'll random novels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's one called The Da Vinci Code. Don't know if anybody read that one. Stephen King. <laughs> uh, I love the Harry Potter books about Hogsmeade, the, the, the Universal <laughs> attraction. Uh, and no, the, the the there's one that I just absolutely love. It's actually my favorite book of all time. Um, and it does not necessarily have anything to do with theme park uh, creation or, or designing or imagineering, but uh, it is Disney. It's Disney War. Uh, oh, yeah. Great book. Uh, I've read that one multiple times. I absolutely love it. It's it's uh, it's just a page turn. It's a huge, massive book that you'll fly through if you're into the stuff, but it's about yep. the battle of uh, for the company between uh, Roy E. Disney and the end of the Eisner uh, administration with the company. So uh, those are the ones that I would recommend getting your hands on uh, and enjoying. If you want to buy these on Amazon, you can help us out by using our Amazon affiliate link. It doesn't cost you a penny. Segway uh, if master. Over, if you go over to martycall.com, we do have an Amazon ad on the sidebar. If you click through that, uh, we do get a cut if you're looking to buy any of these books. It doesn't cost you anything more uh, in all seriousness, but it does help us out. So anyway, we can use that as our uh, fodder. So thanks, Ellen, for that. Yeah, Tim keeps saying it helps us out. I'm waiting on that check. How's that we, going? We haven't gotten much this year. Nobody's doing it. <laughs> I th- thanks for the check, Tim. It came in last week. Oh, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> you said the loud part soft and the soft part loud, Ben. <laughs> um, all right. Moving on, we got uh, Rick Eisenstein. Uh, what is the best retired attraction at Epcot Center? And I think Max's response says it all here uh, with uh, you serious, Clark. But, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the Aladdin's Magic Carpet Ride, like that VR thing, right? Uh-huh. Uh, Journey to Jerusalem from the Festival <laughs> Pavilion, uh, the Millennium Pavilion. So taking Horizons and Imagination out of this conversation. Uh, what, what, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> You can't I'm, look. I'm, look, we don't. Con- I'm, I'm trying to advance the conversation. No, 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 no. We don't to control do. the questions that the listeners send. We have to. We can't say thank you for the question. Now we're going to answer a different one. That's not how answering a question works. So okay, those are the two obvious ones, yeah. uh, and we can harp on those as well. But uh, are there others that are perhaps lesser attractions that you are also nostalgic for? I think World of Motion yeah. um, was pretty clearly superior to what replaced it largely because Mm -hmm. again, there was a a sense that thrill rides are what was going to carry the day. And I suppose reasonable people could say that that was the right choice. Um, But that was a ride that had depth. It had length. uh, It really expressed, but you don't hear the outrage of that one, which is interesting. You don't, which uh, I guess I think, I think test track was 
was good enough yeah. that you don't hear that outrage. Whereas so, Mission uh, Space missed on so many levels. Yep. Yeah. Imagine, Imagination 2.0 and 3.0 missed on so many levels. So you can, there are people, and don't get me wrong, I, I like Test Track for what it is. Um, I would, I would love to ride World of Motion again. Yeah. Um, but I think there is more of a debate with that one. There's very little that is unique about Test Track, but there was a lot that was, there's, sure. there's no ride in the universe that was like World of Motion. Um, so to me, that, that's sad. And that building, for those who've never seen it, was a lot cooler when it was World yeah. of Motion. Yep. Uh, it had that portico in there where the ride went outside and then turned around and went back in. Like it had some very unique attributes. And, and I think largely aside from just the nature of an attraction itself, Epcot itself was such a unique place back in, mm-hmm. you know, for the first 10 years of its existence that that just, that's an aesthetic loss on top of, of, of losing the attraction. So for me, you know, test track is there. And I think that plays into horizons too, because maybe part of the reduction in outrage is at least we kept the building, you know, it's mm-hmm. not, not intact, but at least there's, at least there's something there, you know, you can have a nostalgic connection to that structure. Um, whereas horizons, you know, God rest its soul, just gone. You mentioned the ascent of world emotion and, uh, uh, childhood Tim with his film camera, mm-hmm. every trip took the same picture from the same spot going up that ascent, yep. um, where I'd have the railing blocking my yep. view of spaceship earth. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and I, there's somewhere in my parents' house where, you know, I had my 12 or 24 pictures that I could take. And that was one of them every single time. Yep. So, uh, I definitely have fond memories of that. Yeah, I recently showed my daughters a YouTube video of World of Motion, and the that start where you go outside and come back in just blew their mind. They, they, they thought that was the coolest thing ever, and I, I agree with you. I'm I'm right there with uh with World of Motion. I love Horizons, we all do. Uh, but as a kid, that was the one that really stuck with me pretty pretty hardcore. Uh, and I think you're right that Test Track was a the the attraction was pretty cool at the time when it first opened like we really didn't mm-hmm. have something like that uh, you know over time it, it's aged fine as far as like the actual uh i don't think there's anything really wrong with no. this track no of the problems with epcot it's like 42nd on the list okay. yeah. i think the newer uh, very unpopular opinion based on my anecdotal evidence i think the new version is much better than the original test track it's way more epcot if nothing else we, we've had that conversation i think that's fair especially the pre-show yeah big time. Uh, the, the yeah. design component c- component which is like a component <laughs> um <laughs> uh is is very much uh classic epcot yeah so yeah. they they hit on that um the other the other thing with uh, uh classic epcot that i miss are the focus on those pre on those uh, post shows? Um, yeah. Yes, they they hit on it in test track now, which is one of the few that I think has really kind of excelled. Where that post show area is still pretty well done. Yep. And probably a better post show than what was there for World of Motion. I would agree with that. Um, Although World of Motion's post show was largely a. Uh, an ad campaign. Not that this is much different, but so I, I, you, you got me thinking in real time now. I think part of what was, if you are someone who would really wish you could go back in time and go to a world's fair, then I think mm-hmm. you would like the post show of world of motion. Um, it's very similar to mm-hmm. some of the Monsanto post shows that were, that were yep. in Disneyland where there was really no effort made to conceal the fact that they were shilling for a sponsor of the attraction. 
Um, and I can see how that could be a turnoff and I get that. And I'm okay. That, that doesn't strike me as being an unreasonable position. Um, but at the same time, they're still shilling for the sponsor of that attraction. It's just, it's done a little more subtly and I'm not sure that that's actually more respectable, you know, more respectful of the guest or not. Um, but you know, world's fairs used to be a, a big thing and Epcot, did a good job, I think, of being what Walt expressed as being a permanent World's Fair. And those sort of corporate, corporately heavy uh, post shows were a part of that. The grassy family routine in Epcot would be Spaceship Earth, World of Motion, Horizons. Um, we'd go into Wonders of Life, but uh, we'd be hitting Cranium Command. And I loved Coach's Corner. Um, I don't know if you guys remember that, where they had a cast member um, picking a uh, film footage of a uh, of an athlete, and you can pick your sport. I think it was tennis, golf, baseball, and that might have been it. And they would just kind of like assess your swing in that sport. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that I loved doing. And Gary Carter was the uh, was the baseball um, the uh, baseball athlete that would uh, uh, that would assess your swing. So I, I enjoyed that. And then over on the other side of Future World. Um, imagination and living with the land where we would go. Uh, we weren't really huge fans of the seas. We weren't really huge fans of universe of energy. I don't begrudge anybody that loved those attractions. They certainly had their, uh, uh, uh their fans. It just wasn't what we did, but, um, yeah, I think, uh, we kind of hit on, on what we all like. Cream yeah. command was another underrated one. I'll throw one that might be kind of controversial to you guys, but, uh, I know 14 year old me really kind of liked the, uh, redo of Interventions uh, in 94. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. I go back and watch a lot of the old Walt Disney World Inside Outs on YouTube, and they, they seem every episode to hit on something new that's going inside Interventions. And So is Universal finally responding to 1994 Interventions Sega Genesis area? A little is bit. Is that what they're doing? That's exactly <laughs> what they're doing. Uh, the one that blew me away was the Bill Nye the Science Guy exhibit that had the screen where his face ex- – like it was a television screen – and his face pushed through the screen, and and the I'm video, not familiar with this. I'll have uh, to look it up. Yeah, it's it's a really cool deal. Um, but they just had a lot of cool exhibits through there that that were, you know, for somebody my age at that time, you hit all the right spots. So, uh, and unfortunately, they didn't keep up with the maintaining and, and converting that area, you know, like they did at the first. It, it died a slow death. And, uh, you know, whatever they end up doing with all those spaces is probably better, uh, obviously better, considering like the last 10 years of those areas just going pretty much dead and dormant. But back in 94, when the, when that launched and was a, a big centerpiece of what Epcot was doing at the time, I really enjoyed that area. One of the things that I really liked was both an Imagination and the Centorium were those glass elevators. Yep. Uh, for, for whatever reason, I loved I loved just going up and down on those. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world that you could kind of see out on an elevator. No, I agree. I remember that. Centorium in particular, that co- that store was cool. Yeah. And like yeah. to take impo- even the name, like, cause you know, all the Disney parks had an Emporium to make it the Centorium. Yeah. Like there was just so much cleverness and subtleness there. Really cool. So those types of things, like the image works was uh, probably my favorite place in all of Epcot. Um, to we could spend or I, I could spend hours in there. Um, my parents would let me loose around the Centorium, not with any money, mind you. But uh, <laughs> all right, he, he's in Disney World; he's safe. And you know, <laughs> six or seven year old Tim is wandering around, so it's the uh, uh, role of good parenting there. But um, I just I loved just being able to wander around in there. 
Um, and those are kind of the, the memories that I have. And it's, don't get me wrong, Horizons and Imagination, uh, I would give up those other memories if we could bring those back in, their, uh, in, in the forms that we know and love. But um, the smaller things are kind of what I wanted to draw attention to here. Yeah. I mean, one thing I miss about Epcot, I don't know if this is a responsive to his, to the question or not. Uh, was it her? I'm, I apologize. I don't remember who asked the question. Um, but they really altered the, the walkways in Epcot. There used to be a yeah. lot more water. Um, it was a little bit more difficult to get around because you had to go, you know, you had to walk a longer distance to get around these waterways as opposed to the, you know, shorter, taking the shortcut that they created when they paved over them. But yeah. there was just, I mean, as a kid, I didn't care about aesthetics. I didn't think, you, you know, if you asked me, little Josh, what do you care about? I wouldn't have told you green space, you know, but uh, nonetheless, but it felt right. But when I walked into that place, it blew me away and it left an impression yeah. on me that makes me sit up late at night with, you know, other old men talking about it. I mean, that's a hell of an impression to leave. And I, I do miss that because these parks have gotten really cluttered. And one of the things that Epcot used to have was just elbow room. And, and yeah. now, you know, it's like there's a, a cart and a kiosk and awnings everywhere you look. Um, it's that to me is as big of a loss in a lot of ways as losing an attraction because just the, the sense, the, the place that you're spending the majority of your time during your visit just isn't as nice as it used to be. Yeah. And I think that's fair. And it's why I've <laughs> said that the park isn't, uh, it's the worst park in uh, worst stateside park right now um, that they stripped away too much from it. So yes, it still has those remnants, but it doesn't have all of them. And they took away too many of them and the other parks have stepped up their game. I can't, so, I can't bring myself to say it's the worst stateside park. And, but I recognize that that might be my emotions clouding my ability to do yeah, it. And that's, the th that's the thing that I, I've, I've detached myself from that. Uh, at least I, th I think I have. Fair uh, enough. Don't get me wrong. Like if I walk into Epcot, it's still a happy place. Yeah. And when I say that it's the worst, it's not the, the worst place Disney in the world. It's no, the worst. It's, it's, it's the worst of six Disney theme parks. Yeah, very qualified. I, I I would rather be in any one of those six Disney theme parks than any place that I've ever been uh, this year. Let's let's use this year as an example. Um, don't get me wrong, but. Uh, that is a high bar. So you're in sixth place. Yeah. Speaking, speaking of somebody who's been there in the last month, it's the yeah. worst. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that actually segues nice into nicely into our next question. Uh, how would you change the park experience since COVID? Limited guests was great, but it's unsustainable. Virtual queues are too much planning, and I hate all the planning as it is. I'm glad they're bringing back park hopping, even if it's after two. It's better than nothing. I don't like no hopping. Uh, it's a good double negative there, David. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we haven't insulted him in a while. So, uh, Ben, you can probably speak to this better than Josh or myself because you've seen it. Um, was there anything that in the moment, in the, uh, the week that you were down there that you felt could be done better that you'd like to see while still maintaining the safety concerns that are going to be with them for at least another six months, probably six to nine months? I can't. I mean, they – I, I I wish there was something I could come back and say that they did this wrong or that wrong. I didn't feel safe doing this or that, but they they did a great job of doing everything that you would expect them to do to to keep you in a at least keep the perception of you being safe. I, I do you really, feel it was overkill? No, 
I don't okay. I don't think so. Um, because I mean, they they didn't it didn't distract you from anything. Like we still had a blast. I I can't say <laughs> that this trip suffered any from the COVID experience. You but know, you've also said that uh, you wouldn't recommend it for a first trip. So, um, <laughs> that's true. You did say and, that, and and, and, uh, and others have said that as well. So that that yeah, has well, to be but factored. That, but in. that that was a lot more concerning. Like the, I thought there were things like the maintenance on attractions was not great. There, okay. the, the pre <laughs> so improve the maintenance. That's yeah, COVID policy. Yeah, I, but that's. I think we would be saying that COVID or non-COVID, you know, with mm-hmm. some of the administration going on right now, how much they want to invest on fixing things has been questionable over the last couple of years. Uh, there, there's, you know, that was that was one of the issues. The big issue for me on that one, though, was the experiences with the pre-shows, mm-hmm. um, and based on what the recommendations are of keeping people safe during this time, I don't think there's anything different they could do. You can't okay. enclose people in a stretching room. Um, unless you want to let them want to let them go one family at a time, uh, and if you do that, yeah, then those yeah those those waits are going to be ridiculously long. Uh, you know they they visually look long already, but in reality they'll be insanely long if you if you do that. So you you can't. Um, I don't think my comment on that was I don't think somebody going for their first trip would have a bad time. I think they would thoroughly enjoy themselves. They just would not get the full experience of every attraction uh, as it was meant to be seen. If you want the full experience, you got to go back to like 92. True. (laughs) True. So, um, you know, I I think the other things would be just little nitpicks on, you know, we talked about park hours being so short. Um, that doesn't help when the crowds are obviously there. Uh, so we were maxed out every day and yeah, there were things that we couldn't do because the, the crowds were heavy. People wanted to go. And even with limited capacity, uh, it doesn't help if the parks are closing at six and seven o'clock at night. I think that's a bit ridiculous based on the price point that you're, you're paying to go in. So that would be my biggest, uh, Ask, I don't think be, they should be charging full price right now. No. And we say that a lot, but I think you can 100% justify that uh, as a legit argument. And if you are used to paying you know, $110 a day for a, a day at Disney, you're getting less for yep. the same price. You have to know that going in. Yep. And see, we went during a holiday week, but our first like three days at the parks were non-holiday. So mm-hmm. we experienced it. You know, the park's closing at six and seven. And then we also experienced the nine o'clock and 10 o'clock closings over at Universal. And mm. the nine and 10 o'clock closings felt like a real day. When, when, <laughs> when those hours extended on the weekend, it felt like a pretty regular vacation. So, um, you know, I, I, I really applaud them. Like, I go back to like what I said on that episode. I applaud the things that they've done uh, to, you know, at least make things up to code for, you know, CDC recommendations. I applaud yeah. the cast members because their jobs suck right now, uh, but they are doing it with a smile on their face and, and you know, being as proactive as they need to be in the parks uh, if they see any instances of unsafe uh, behavior by any guests. But, uh, you know, I, I still feel the same way from from what I talked about on the last show that I thought they did a great job and, and uh, you know, it. If this is your first trip going there, yeah, maybe you question it a little bit. But if you've gone many, many times, go because you'll enjoy it. You'll you'll enjoy the heck out of it. Let's take uh, Rise of the Resistance out of this. 
from a guest convenience standpoint, would you have been in favor of more virtual queues when rides started hitting certain benchmarks, either in like uh, length of time that the wait was or space required for uh, for the queue? Would it, would that have interested you? No. No, uh, because as we talked about, the, 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 the length of the lines, and I, I still love it because I'm watching on the weekends and pe- bloggers and people on Twitter are posting these pictures of the lines and blowing it so out of proportion. The lines aren't long. There's no vir- – mm-hmm. when you take away the virtual queue, when you take away the fast pass and everybody's in one line and continuously you moving – 70% of time. people devoted to fast pass and that's gone. Yeah. And it's just standby now. The, these, the lines were the easiest part about my trip. We blew okay. through the lines. We did so many attractions. And yes, I, I did worry about it a little bit going in because I believe some of the hype. And I can, I can tell you firsthand from somebody who is there not just one day and maybe got lucky – you know, we were in the parks for seven days, and it was the same every single day. So, no, I would not want more virtual queues. Um, I just get in line, people. Get in line and walk through. We did it for how many years before FastPass came around the first time? You can do it now, and, and it I was pro- great. It and it's just <laughs> as great now. It's just as great. So, uh, one more question from me related to this, and this uh, it would go against current CDC recommendations, but just kind of. Uh, playing the hypothetical here, let's say it was um, it was revealed that an outdoor uh, that wearing a mask outdoors is less necessary than wearing one indoors. Um, could you see them saying, "All right, you only have the mask mandate indoors," and having Disney back off, or is it just administratively convenient to say wear the mask at all times? I know it's kind of a, it's a weird question, but no, I think it's a good question. I I I, I have a hopeful answer. I, I, I would hope aunt, that they would do that, but I you know who knows. Yeah, you, which you one's know? the path? Which one's the path of least resistance? Which one? <laughs> which one's going to cause less fights in the parks? In in and that's probably saying keep it as is. I think so. Wear a mask at all times. I think so. Um, well, because you don't necessarily. Probably, what's a, what what is Tomorrowland Terrace? Is that inside or outside? That's the problem. Is that it's covered? Yeah. You know, so, by having a rule that's draconian, you eliminate a lot of the edge cases. So exactly, and I mean, so often uh, as a society, this isn't just exclusive to Disney. You go with, as Ben said, that path of least resistance. Uh, if somebody is incapable of following the rules that you set forth, you change those rules to ones that are a little bit easier for people to understand. Um, I also think that from a just pure scientific study standpoint, hopefully we will be beyond the stage of mass being necessary when a su- one such study is relevant and a recommendation by the CDC is provided, yeah. uh, if that makes sense. But anyway, um, to, uh, uh, to, the, to the question that David asked, uh, you're, Ben, you're basically saying you don't think there really should be much change uh, under the current provisions that we're currently dealing with. Yes. Currently. Yes. i'll start over from the beginning so i'm kidding uh no i i i i I like longer park i i just some of the park hours some of the things that they've restricted on i wish they would expand on because again yeah it might be at what 35 percent park capacity but you know what that's what the parks are on some regular days 
Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, not, it's not like they hit 100% capacity every day by any means. So They hover in the 40 to 70 range on probably 90% of days. Right. So uh, at that point, I think they're, they're – obviously, we don't know that. They don't make that public information. They make this 35 – I may pu- actually have a graphic for that, but keep talking. I was going to say, they make this 35% public knowledge, and to a lot of us, that sounds low. Because a yeah. lot of us just assume, oh, it's got to be 90 to 100% every day. It's not. It's nowhere close. But yeah. that number sounds so low that they feel like they can justify by uh, not opening all the restaurants, not opening all the shops, not keeping the parks open as late as they should be. Uh, so at some point, we got to hold them accountable to making things, you know, normalizing a lot of that stuff uh, because we, we can't just fall for the propaganda of some of those things that they put out in those press releases or on investor calls. We, we know that it's not true. They're trying to do what they can to cut corners and save a buck, but they're also not cutting us any slack when it comes to park prices uh, on our tickets, our food or anything like that. So I, I would like a little bit of a normalizing of things back to the park while keeping the protections that they put in uh, in place during this time period. I'm pretty comfortable saying that generally things are easier to keep than they are to get back. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see post COVID, you know, how, how much of a return we get to the standards that we expected prior to it. So uh, to your point on where they hit from a percentage standpoint, uh, I have a graphic that is an internal Disney document that was used uh, to sell FastPass Plus back when it was called XPass, and then they realized that that was a uh, porn site. Um, the Magic Kingdom, they did a breakdown of the days of the Magic Kingdom, and they did it by uh, attendance number, not a percentage of uh what the park can hold, but they projected three days of the year to have attendance of 75,000 plus four days, 70,000 plus three days, 65,000 plus 10 days, uh, 60,000 plus everything else is under 60,000. Um, the numbers that I've seen for the magic kingdom, I can pull it up for studios and animal kingdom at 60,000 for Epcot. I think it's North of a hundred, uh, for the magic kingdom. I've got an attendance of 90,000 guests. So, other than, you know, two dozen days a, a year, you're looking at under 70% of capacity for the yeah. Magic Kingdom. So when they get to 50% occupants, uh, 50% uh, guests allowed, it's not going to be that different than the normal operations for people. It's going to feel like a six or a seven on the crowd calendar. Yeah. Anyway, I think that uh, the other thing that should go without saying, but we should actually know it shouldn't go without saying, is bringing back more of those entertainment cast members, bringing back uh, more cast members in general um, will absolutely help spread those crowds. And if going back to my question about mask mandate in or out, uh, inside or outside, if you've got street performers, streetmosphere characters, those types of things, while they may gather a crowd, um, the exposure risk, if everybody's wearing a mask and outside, uh, by all accounts, is less than that same scenario inside. So um, anyway, I know that they're trying to prevent those types of uh, gatherings from happening, and that's one of the motivat- uh, motivating uh, reasons behind the decision, but uh, something that I would absolutely love to see sooner rather than later. Uh, next question comes to us from Seth Crawford. 
Why does Disney copy attractions and place them in other parks? It seems that if they made every attraction different, then it would give people a reason to visit both parks. I'm referring to Ratatouille and the Jungle Cruise, etc. If you offer totally different experiences of each variation of each attraction, it will attract more guests. Well, <laughs> My I mean, first answer was money. Yes. But uh, I think it's it's not really the cost savings that people sell it as. I think it's more a it's a safer route. So the, the, uh, the best, I, I think that the best uh, maybe metaphor or analogy we can look at is why they didn't build Pirates of the Caribbean in Florida in the first place. Because there was this idea that, well, these folks are already close to the Caribbean, so they won't mm-hmm. want an experience that mimics something that's nearby. And what they found out is that, that was wrong. Yeah. And I think, yep. I think what happens largely is that people get the idea, they see an attraction on TV or they watch a YouTube video like this Nintendo thing and they go, I want to go have so that experience. Have and there's a lot of those people who are not going to say, well, I really want to experience Nintendo in real life, so I'm going to fly to Japan. But, mm-hmm. but a, a huge portion of that group of people who are interested in experiencing that might travel to a park in their own country. Japan so, is the moon for some people. Absolutely. And, and Florida is not. And you, so, when you the, when you couple that social sort of psychological marketing fact with the notion that you can build, you know, the the cost of build the cost per unit of these attraction goes down markedly as the number of units that you build go up. Um, you know, there's a lot of R and D there. That's one of the reasons why you see these things generally are clones, and that's something that we've been frustrated by from time to time. That they're literally identical. You know, why, why is that? Well, the why deals largely with the fact that if you're going to make an engineering change, you have to certify the whole thing. You know, you have to demonstrate that this change that you made doesn't have some, you know, cascading effect on other parts of this complex system. So, uh, you know, these companies make use of economies of scale by cloning these things in whole and they plop them down. They satisfy their customers demand. Um, you know, and it, it it makes economic sense to do it. I don't think. What was the listener's name? I'd like to call him by name instead of just him. I've navigated away from it. Uh, that was Seth, Crop- Seth, Seth Crawford. All right, Seth. So uh, I think Seth is right. It, it. I think that it's true to say that if if every Disney park was truly unique in all ways, such that there were, mm-hmm. you know, if you Venn diagrammed them all, there'd be little or no overlap. It probably is true. That for diehard fans, there would be a greater impetus for them to travel to all of the different parks. I, I think that's realistic. But yep. what is the, you know, when you net everything out at the percentage of those people who actually would go do it versus the, you know, incremental increase in attendance that you can get and also the increase in capacity that you get in these parks by plopping these attractions in, um, I think it probably makes the most financial sense for them to do what they're doing, which I want to be clear, isn't me saying that my preference is that, you know, I, I would love it if every park was truly unique. So let's look at the actual attractions that are being cloned. And I think there's a, there's a logic behind it that so many of the attractions that are being direct directly cloned, there is a significant amount of computing technology in those attractions. Um, while you have like, Space Mountains is a perfect example of an attraction that has quote unquote been cloned throughout the world, which has never each been version cloned. Is different. Yeah, they're not even close. Uh, and it's because you build a different roller coaster track. The uh, interior theming can be variable, 
and you've you've satisfied the Space Mountain name without making it a direct link. Correct. But some of the ones that have been cloned where they opened within a month or two of each other, Toy Story Mania is a good example. The right. ride itself is very, very similar. Uh, there might be slight minor alterations to the bus bar track. I don't know if it's technically a bus bar track, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But the actual screen interaction is the same in California, Tokyo, and uh, in Florida. Um, Rise of the Resistance, very precise attraction from a uh, ride system standpoint, as well as all of the other mechanics com- uh, combined with it. The the ones where you see variation in it are the attractions that don't necessarily have that reliance on computers as the sole driver of the entertainment. So something like Jungle Cruise has variations throughout the world right. because the actual ride system is more primitive. Um, don't forget your quasi-clones, too, like uh, Indiana Jones and Dinosaur, you know, where the you, you clone the technology, but, you know, you you click a different shell onto it, and it creates yeah, a different yeah. experience. I mean, look, it's all about economics, you know? Um, I think it's a good question. I hope it's something that Imagineering wrestles with, because um, at some point, the volume of things that they can do goes down when they mm-hmm. decide that everyone is going to be a bespoke you know, custom creation. So what is the, what's the right balance there? You know, hell if I know, that's why, it, that's why big companies like this are a, uh, it's a symphony of different disciplines. You have, you know, economists and accountants and engineers and artists that are hopefully working together in order to take the scarce resources of the organization and create the most awesomeness that they can with it. I think that uh, the biggest reason why is uh, now is because they're increasingly more risk averse in the parks. Mm-hmm. So if you have something that is a known entity, they can do it, and that's why they that's why they tie things to IP as well. Because yep. uh, with IP, quality can be masked by familiarity in the form of IP. Yep. As for cloning attractions. Uh, I also think that the number of people that regularly visit other parks around the world isn't that significant. Yeah. Um, it's not insignificant, but I don't think it is the driver. And nearly everybody that is a Disney fan and a fan of the Disney parks has that resort that they consider their home resort. Mm-hmm. And for Florida, that's more of the destination, whereas Disneyland and the other parks around the world are more for the locals of that area. But – um, some interesting things that Josh, you kind of uh, alluded to, back when Walt was making decisions for the uh, for the company. A story that I remember hearing is uh, uh, I don't know if it was Imagineers or somebody in, in ops complaining that path, that uh, guests were wearing out a pathway on a plot of grass. So, they said, "Well, then there should be a path there." Right. I love that. And yep. it's saying you don't Disney has had a long history of not necessarily knowing what the guests wanted but also giving guests things that they don't know what they want right. it's 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 a different uh, uh, it's a it's a juggling act that you don't necessarily know what's going to happen until people set foot inside the park and Epcot was a good example of this as well and we we bemoan the addition of characters in Epcot, but characters were in Epcot from 1984 on in yep. some way, shape, or form yeah. because the expectation of going into a Disney theme park was there needs to be characters. If your biggest complaint about Epcot is that they put characters in it, you're missing the big picture about Epcot. That's for sure. And, and the and they made the same mistake in Disney California Adventure um, where they didn't have characters in it at the beginning, and then they added characters and people started liking the park again. Uh, or not again, but for the first time. Um 
then over in Tokyo related to this, it's a cultural thing. Uh, uh, I'm going to quote Mr. Baseball here because we've gone obscure movie territory here uh, that Japan takes the best from all over and makes it her own. And that was very much the mindset in Tokyo where they picked and and chose what they wanted from Florida and what they wanted from California. And they put that in the park. We want Florida's version of the haunted mansion. We want uh, California's version of pirates of the Caribbean. And they went and, and, did it that way. They didn't want the risk uh, when they were building that park. And the way that they sold them on Disney Sea was drawing comparisons of each of the attractions to uh, uh, the the layout of Disneyland and saying, all right, this is the equivalent of it's a small world. This is, you know, we've got this successful over in Disneyland here. So they they were, were risk averse there as well. Uh, I think that's a huge component of it, uh, of all of this. You also, I think you're right, but at the same time, I feel like a tendency to go toward things that are very likely to succeed are the anchors that open up the opportunity to do things that are much more risky and innovative. You you can't bet the company on every single decision that you make, right? Sure, sure. Um, But when you have a you know a cadre of attractions that you that you have that you're investing money into that you know are almost certainly going to either move the needle with attendance or significantly increase capacity or satisfy some pent up guest demand i think that does you know, because we've got to remember, we're dealing with humans here, right? It's really easy to be anthropomorphic when we look at these companies and go, well, it's the Disney Corporation. Well, it's really not. It's really a mm-hmm. bunch of people who are trying not to get fired, who are trying to get their bonus at the end of the year, and hopefully at some level are trying to leave a legacy by creating something great that will be on this earth after they leave it. Except for the legal legacy tombstones. It, well, yes, and that was the correct choice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but they're all just humans. So I, I think... When, when you've had home run, home run, home run, home run attributed to you or to your group or, or your division, I think that just the natural human response to that is to go, hey, you know, let's swing for the fence on this and see what we can we can actually create. So I think that the right choice here in the real world where economics matter and where pleasing your guests matter and where the happiness of all of your stakeholders matters, I think the best choice is a balance there. And it, mm-hmm. it seems to me if you spend a you know, $500 million developing an attraction. And it's a huge hit in this one location. And everyone around the world is saying, we want to experience this thing. Are you really serving your customers well by saying, well, too bad, we're not going to build it in the country that you live in. You know, I mean, you got to, you really have to be willing to walk over to the other side of the coin and see what the, you know, public perception would be if you took the opposite ideology and were, you know, extraordinarily rigid about it. People go, well, you're just being a dick. <laughs> you know, build, <laughs> build me the damn ride, you know? You build yeah, something yeah. cool. I'm telling you it's cool. I want to pay you to ride it. You're saying I, I have to leave my country to do it. You yep. know, especially now, if that was ever a defensible strategy, it yeah, certainly yeah, is now. Absolutely. All right, why don't we move along to Michael Marmol's question? Uh, why is Toy Story Mania such a, I'm using air quotes here, great ride? How could you plus the attraction to make it actually good? <laughs> Wait, could, could he read that again? Was, it, was there sarcasm there that I missed? Oh, there absolutely was. Okay, good. Uh, why, why, why is Toy Story Mania such a great ride? How could you plus the attraction to make it actually okay, good? Now I appreciate it. They, I think you put the emphasis on the wrong slobble, and I uh, didn't appreciate the, the uh, listener's question. Yeah. So I'm going to come to defense of Toy Story Mania. I like the ride. Okay. Uh, it's not responsive uh, to his question. 
So he didn't ask uh, if you liked the, it. <laughs> I, I'm just I'm going to put that out there and then let you two talk and badmouth it. So I'm not going to badmouth it, but I would say it's it's become a filler attraction. I think, uh, especially when that park had so few things to do in there on on that were family friendly that the entire family could ride together. Um, it was it was propped up higher than it probably should have ever been. But now that uh, you know you you've got uh, the attractions that have opened in Toy Story Land uh, with Slinky Dog. You've got the Star Wars attractions now going. You've got Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. It's definitely been bumped down to that mid-tier attraction um, because... It's it, probably it, the eighth best ride in that park now. It is, without a doubt now. Uh, now, if they had ever done what they had promised and updated the ride and, and plussed it and made uh, the, you know cool new experiences, it might move it up a, a, a couple pegs. But it's the same experience as the same ride for many, many years now. Uh, if you know how to play the game, it's it's not new. It's kind of like Buzz Lightyear, where if you know the uh, couple targets and you hit them, you know, nine times, you've got the nine ninety nine and nine ninety nine score, and uh, you're done with it. So there's just not a whole lot to it now. The, the, when it first came out, it was pretty innovative with the pull string technology and shooting mm-hmm. on the screen. That, that was pretty neat, but now. Yeah, it's it's mid to lower tier compared to all the other new stuff that are in the park. I'm going for the jugular on this one. Here we go. And I'm, I'm going to use your words against you. So I've got I've got words lined up for it. So okay. go for it. And I'm actually going to try <laughs> to make a tie into the earlier Nintendo discussion. Okay. Um, one of the things that Nintendo was really known for back in the day was it broke from the tradition of virtually every other game maker where all that mattered was was score. And they Mm -hmm. created a game where it was either a linear, in the case of like Donkey Kong or Mario Brothers, or non-linear, like in the case of Zelda, experience, okay? And that spoke to people. People liked that because it wasn't just trying to rack up points. It was about experiencing something that they couldn't in the real world. Now, Toy Story Mania, in my opinion, is the bare minimum of what it would take to actually even be called a ride. And I know Disney would call it an attraction. We've talked about that. We could be pedantic on the show. But is it more of a ride than Fast and Furious? I'm more, not going to get into your Millennium it's, Falcon it's, thing. It's more of a ride than Soren, in my opinion, because it moves you from, from, from A to B. But if you took a video arcade that had mm-hmm. 30 poor video games in it, and then put someone in a chair with wheels on it and push them from one game to the next and say, how do you like my ride? They would all say, <laughs> this sucks. But that's what that ride is. The game isn't good. The environment isn't good. Um, your hand hurts like hell if you're actually trying to win when you're done with it. If it's, you're wondering about my swole right arm, that's how I get it. Right, 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 right. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I think that it actually is it was a cheap idea that was implemented moderately well and I, I think it's I think that it I think Ben was right it not, not only should it not have had uh, the you know the expectations set for it the way that they were but I I really think that largely the guest reaction to it is overly generous to, now to to counter my own point my wife who is one of the very smartest people I've my ever wife. met. My wife, my <laughs> wife. Uh, she loves it, you know, and, and yep. she's a brilliant person. So who is, you know, not, you know, a, a ball of tin. Well, maybe a ball of tin foil would entertain her. I don't know. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> I've so given her one maybe I, for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I recognize that all we can ever do as humans is 
share our subjective opinions about these things, really. But I think that we do a pretty good job on the show generally of trying to break through that and talk about the fundamental components of attractions and say this is you know either really worthy of praise or this is really sort of deficient. And I think that when you look at the fundamentals of what that ride is, we have to say that it is it is a Chester and Hester level deal. It is not at the standard that, that we expect from Disney. All right, I'm happy to hear your words. Uh, I, I don't want to cut you off. I'm just saying that to, compared to Chester and Hester, it's not realistic. Having said that, it is a midway game, and Chester and Hester is a is a midway vibe. But getting closer to agreeing with you there, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's a video game for people that aren't a fan of video games, is what it is. Okay, I'll buy that. And does that sound like a good idea that, to you? <laughs> well, well, here, here's the thing, though. Like in a theme park environment, it's a kick in the balls for people who don't like being kicked in the balls. <laughs> You can't assume that everybody is going to be above the level of basic button mashing video game skill. And I that's agree. what it is. That's what that is. That's what Buzz Lightyear is. Uh, while significantly more dimensional, that's what Men in Black is. Um, Josh, you had said something about the uh, the vibe of OG Epcot being empowering. Yeah. I think the approach here, and you can certainly argue that they missed the mark on it, is that Disney is using the competition-based attractions as a means of empowering people. That they're, by adding a competition level to it, that is uh, an added fun component in many people's eyes. But as you said, like, if if you went on Smuggler's Run and there was no score component to it, would that really detract from the experience uh, if it was anything other than, like, you come back and you get reprimanded by Hondo for beating up the ship, or you get commended by him. But the thing like is, it's just a pass fail. If you took the score component out of Toy Story and Mania, there's no components left. You're, you're, you're right, and that's that's. But I'm so I'm saying like the evolution of it, I think, is something like the teamwork attraction, like uh, uh, Smuggler's Run, where there is a point component to it. But I think the the component on Smuggler's Run is really just a pass-fail component, mm-hmm. whereas that wouldn't work on Toy Story Mania or Buzz Lightyear. I think so, if the scoring broke on Smuggler's Run, it would be 99% of the attraction that it is without it. And I know a lot yeah, of people exactly. would disagree with me on that, but no, no, you're th- right, there's though. so much there. You know, and you could you could have ten thousand people ride that, and they would all love it for ten thousand different reasons. But if it, so, you know, I don't know what those reasons would be on Toy Story Mania. So with Toy Story Mania and Buzz Lightyear, it is one hundred percent linked to the competition aspect of it, right. and that's not for everybody. And when it's a, I mean, I suck at video games, so it's like it's at my level of video game skill. That's because your computer is full of bees. It's true, <laughs> but. <laughs> Uh, Murder Hornets, actually. (laughs) Oh, you upgraded. Nice. Yes, I did. (laughs) Uh, I got the i7 chip of the Murder Hornets. Anyway. (laughs) That's the most technical I've ever heard Tim talk. (laughs) The i7 chip. (laughs) Anyway, um, you're you're absolutely right in that the competition, like you take that aspect out of it and there's not a lot there. Whereas over on Men in Black, for example, they added additional layers to the competition where it works as a passive experience. Uh, it's not as good as just a passive experience, but there's at least dimensional sets and uh, right. interactive components to it. Yeah. The other thing that I think also conceivably works like that would be uh, the Monsters, Inc. ride over in Tokyo, where there's no 
there's no winner or loser, but you're activating things in the scene. Right. And which is a which is a midway thing too. Right, right. You know? So like let's let's assume that you're tied in Toy Story to the uh to screen based things. If they take away I mean you're gonna totally change the uh the the objective of the ride that there will be less of an objective but you're potentially activating things on the screen that aren't necessarily point driven would that work as an attraction do you think that's possible can you, i apologize can you, can you say this at the end of that one more time so i really <laughs> understand what you said if you take away the competition part of toy story mania uh-huh. and you're still going from screen to screen but you're you're finding ways to activate things on the screen, whatever that may be. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's. The- I think that's worse. I don't think that's okay. a thing. That's the thing is, there's just there's just nothing physical there. Like to just right. And that's to, that's the biggest criticism. To parade me by a bunch of 42 inch televisions that are turned on their side is just not compelling in 2020. <laughs> nor was it in 2019, uh, well, 2018, or 2017. Tim, are you describing kind of maybe what we're going to be seeing with the new Spider-Man attraction at California Adventure? I don't know how many dimensional sets are going to be in Spider-Man, uh, but I'm guessing that will also have a score component to it. I don't, I don't know, but that's kind of where my mind went. That See, to me, that, that kind of lays out to where you're helping Spider-Man. There's no need for a score. Go in there and shoot all that possible. you can, and maybe it keeps track of how many you shot. And if you want to count that as a, a score, uh, obviously you could, but it... It also could just be go in there and clear these scenes, and maybe if you clear a certain amount as it working as a team, then mm-hmm. something will happen on that screen, yeah. or or you know some kind of set piece might might do something, uh, but maybe give you more of a, a teamwork aspect as a, as opposed to a competition yeah. aspect. I mean, we've seen the layout of the Spider Man attraction going into California Adventure, and just looking at the layout, it it was Toy Story Mania, like that's what it looked like to us. And all right, maybe you don't have, you don't have the pull string. You can use kind of like Wii technology, for lack of a better explanation, to uh, uh, to the non technical people out there. But you're doing it without a uh, controller to to sling your web shooters. I don't know what the answer is, but Josh, you also made a point here: is that people are are getting off of Toy Story Mania and having fun. Yeah, and that can't, that can't be dismissed. I, I think a a component that has to be understood here, and this kind of goes to what I was saying about Smuggler's Run, where you complaining about the responsiveness of the controls uh, after having been a pilot um, is similar here with Toy Story Mania. That if you if you play video games, you're gonna think Toy Story Mania is a pile of shit. My and, my none. Of, I get it. No, I, so I'm gonna I want to respond to that point. None of my issues with Toy Story Mania have anything to do with the video game. It's okay. just, I think, and I, maybe I'm going to contradict myself here. It's just, there's just nothing there. And let me give it some yeah. context as a comparison. The local regional um, theme park, I guess, amusement park, whatever, that I, that I live near, Holiday World, has one dark ride. And it's called Gobbler mm-hmm. Getaway. And it is a, a bus bar attraction where you ride in a vehicle. That sounds okay. like a glory so, hole, not a, not a ride. That's Knob <laughs> Gobbler getaway. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. There's that explicit tag. Good job, Ben. I haven't visited Josh in a while. And the, <laughs> the vehicle has like a turkey collar on it, which yeah. is a string-activated thing. 
and you ride through a bunch of dark scenes and you shoot at targets, but they're all physical sets. And yep. when you successfully hit something, you know, something might spin or troll. It's very basic. You know, this is, a, 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 you know, when you look at the budget of a park like this compared to Disney, this is nothing. And it is, in my opinion, a hundred times more fun to ride that than it is to ride Toy Story Mania just because you're interacting I can't argue with, with the world I around mean, you. Men in Black is a better ride than than the two Disney equivalents. I mean, there's no, there's absolutely no reason that Disney couldn't build a Toy Story based ride with practical effects, and it would be oh, amazing. Yep. You know that let, it's just they cheaped out. You know they, they they had two ways to go, and if if building the best possible attraction is what they were after, they picked the wrong one. If building one that was, and I, I think Ben hit on a, an important point early on is that one of the earlier, you know, marketing angles on this was that it's going to be dynamic. It'll never be the same thing twice, you know, but, yeah. but that first of all, that never happened. And second of all, the video element is so thinly veiled that who would even know or care if they yeah. changed it? There's just, there's just not enough there, there. And to respond to one last point that you made, and then, you know, we, you don't, we don't have to agree perfectly on everything. I, I respect your position, and I, I think that's mutual, so I'm fine with that. But you said, you know, people are getting off it and they're having fun. It's like, okay, well, you know, I used to have fun, you know, spraying people with a garden hose. That doesn't make it a Disney-caliber attraction. <laughs> so I, I think we got to be a little bit careful about conflating it not being a punishment to ride on versus, um, you know, uh, 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 like Primeval Whirl. That was an attraction that many people found to be punishing. Yep. Uh, not an insignificant number of people found it to be fatal. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, that was a ride that truly has some massive. I think one is a not an insignificant even number. Even one. There, and, yes. and, and this number was north of that by a significant margin. Yes. Um, you know, and this doesn't have that problem. Yes, it's fun. I'm not suggesting they demolish it. But, you know, when the context of the question is, what can they do to make the ride good, which I think is what our listeners' original question <laughs> has, they yes, can build well, it like they gave a shit about it. I mean, that's that's the simple answer. You know, none of us would struggle at all if, if someone came up to us and said, build a shooter-based score-keeping you know, game based on interacting with the toys. None of us would have come up with that if the goal was to build the best possible ride. And we're not professional Imagineers. So... It is on that basis alone that I can look at it. I don't think anybody who designed that ride would put that at the top of their resume and say, that's the best thing I ever did. The uh, When that ride first opened, the lines for it were ridiculous. Well, people uh, are the idiots. Was, <laughs> the capacity was atrocious. That was a big component of it. Uh, the number of rides in that park were, was also low. There was a bunch of factors that really inflated that. I think at this point now, with the park now has nine rides in it. They've added a third track to it. It has settled to about what it is, which is a mid to low range D ticket. And I, I think you can look at Buzz Lightyear in that same vein, like a C to D type level of attraction, but it was drawing weights like it was like it was Radiator Springs Racers. Can I inject a compliment real quick just to balance out my diatribe? Sure. I do think that the vehicles and the loading mechanism is pretty cool. Um, the way they have the little offshoot for, uh, you know, guests that need more time to, to load and unload, I think that's handled really well. So mm-hmm. there are some things about it that I think from a technical the perspective are cool. Nice. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it, it's agreed. the most you dimensional know, area of the, uh, of the attraction. You know, I'm going to rate my favorite parts of this ride, you know, the switch <laughs> that they use in the loading area. Like, that's not, you know, it's damning with faint praise, to be sure. Yeah. It's just, come on. I just, I... Uh, this is a compliment or an insult that really has an compliment embedded in it because Disney has shown us what they can do 
And, and this is not that. I don't know definitively, but this was built into an existing building. Uh, it was previously home, and, and the studios is previously home to uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. So it was built and, in an empty soundstage. I mean, that's yeah, it was, that's it was not built a, in an empty soundstage. It's not but, a huge but I mean, constraint. <laughs> but it's it, not not a huge constraint, but could be a space constraint. Maybe if you're looking at. Uh, I don't know square footage wise the size of the Men in Black building. I'm going to get the square footage of Gobbler Getaway for you. I can assure you that's that's probably smaller than my house. Then the other the other uh, component was in California. It was being built under an existing roller coaster, so they very well could have had space constraints. But neither here nor there. To your point of build the best ride possible, I don't think anybody could argue that this was the best version of a Toy Story. Shooter ride. And that's anyway. really only my point. Yep. You know, if that was the f- make this, if you've never been to Disney before, you've never been to the studios, ride this first. Let's, I'll, let's put it there. You'll like <laughs> it. You'll be blown away by everything else after you write this. Yep. If that, if that becomes the standard of a minimum Disney attraction, uh, things are going to get better for you. Uh, you mentioned spraying people with a hose, so that's a good transition into Joel Nahn's question. <laughs> if Animal Kingdom were to receive new development, do you think they would redo Dinoland or start fresh with the expansion pad north of Cali River Rapids? I think in-park access to that par- pad can be challenging. I think, we, I think we have some new information since that question was asked that probably helps answer that. Actually, I don't know what you're referring to. Uh, the permanent closing of Primeval World? Oh, yeah, that, that's yeah. happened before that Did question it? came in. Okay, yeah. no mistake. Um, so, I mean, we've we've talked about that uh, large expansion pad north of Cali River Rapids, but it isn't super accessible in the current layout. I think, I mean, 99% of guests that come to that park have no idea that there's additional space beyond Cali River Rapids where they could put in, like, another safari equivalent. Yeah. Whereas those same guests, if they walk through Dinoland, can see, hey, this is shit. <laughs> Address that first. That's yeah, that's my I, recommendation. I agree with that. It's it's yep. nice to have an expansion pad in your pocket too. You know, it's yeah, it's absolutely. untouched and pristine. And when that when that million, well, it better not be a million dollar idea. When the next big idea comes along, it's nice to have that. You know, yeah, th- this yeah. is a part of the park that needs to be fixed. I get it. I'm I like Joe Rody enough at this point where I'm content when he tells me that there is the backstory there. And I think we have to be supportive of the company when it tries to do something and it doesn't work because if we're not, then what that tells them is that they can't ever be innovative because if they're wrong, we're going to judge them harshly. So I'm okay with screw ups, but I think that's been there long enough where we can go this again, similar to my toy story mania thoughts. I don't think that's up to the standard of, of Disney parks. Fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all. It's, it's no big deal. Right. We're, we're not, we still love you. Just fix it. <laughs> I will throw one uh, caveat in there, though. If they want to do the Pirates of the Caribbean Shanghai version of the Jungle Book ride on that expansion sure. pag, uh, go ahead. I'm 100% on board with that. Yep. I think that, I mean, much in the same cool way that Test Track isn't the problem with uh, Epcot, Cali isn't the problem with Animal Kingdom. Yeah. It's, don't get me wrong, it's certainly not the best ride in that park. Uh, and I don't think too many people would be heartbroken if it was removed. But it is not something that is – it's not a problem right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a 20-year-old ride. Realistically, if they were to do a major expansion or re, uh, redesign of Dinorama, perhaps even extending all the way up to the Nemo Theater and put a big uh, addition there – you're probably extending the useful life of Cali for another 10 years because if they break ground on something replacing Dinorama tomorrow, it's not opening for five years. So uh, 
then you get 30 years out of a solid enough rapid ride. Uh, then you can remove it and have access to that larger land. So I, th- I think you got to go Dinorama first. So we have a couple more questions uh, before we uh, wrap up. Actually, I think we no, we got, we got one from uh, Michael Peremsky, <laughs> uh, which is probably Ben's burner account, as I said on Facebook. Yep. Uh, <laughs> why haven't we seen an Endor yet on the rubble of Dinoland USA, Coruscant, and Tomorrowland at the Magic Kingdom, Tatooine, and Epcot, and Batuu in Hollywood Studios? That's more forwards. than one question. <laughs> I object. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically how to spread out the uh, uh, Star Wars across the Star Wars. That's what the kids call it. The Star Wars. Um, spread, out, spread out the Star Wars across four parks. Um, this was actually oh. a rumor a while ago. Um, I don't know how legitimate it was, but I, well, I I don't like the Harry Potter treatment with Star Wars, to be honest with you. I don't either, but again, as we talked about earlier with Nintendo, what do they counter with? Is it more Star Wars? Uh, you know, though, I think the one thing that could make sense is obviously if you I we talked about this before the the timing this the, the the time that Galaxy's Edge is set in that universe doesn't have to be that's that's what they could do with a different Star Wars land in a different park we could maybe correct some of that mistake yeah. you could do something in the old trilogy you could do something in you know obviously the the popularity of the Mandalorian that has that pretty direct connection to the original trilogy time period this is where you could do something along those lines. You could do a uh, Luke Skywalker ride in in, in a different era, uh, uh, section. Uh, yeah. Doing everything in the Hollywood Studios Park is going to really – I think you are tied to that current time period that the attractions are based on now. Maybe. You, and that's the, the way to separate it. And, I, and I'm, not saying, it. I'm not saying this as a I, – I, I'm not advocating for this by any means, but if they – if they decide more Star Wars is the way to go to, you know, keep up with the competition down the road, it's a possibility. And I, I think this is one way that could maybe correct that possible mistake that we looked at setting the attractions in the time period that they did. See, to me, what I hear with this question and with Ben's response. Wah, 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 no. wah, 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 Because <laughs> well, it's Star Wars. No, I admit, I'm, <laughs> I'm not knowledgeable enough about the franchise to give a specific answer, but I, I feel like I don't need to be because the earlier question is, why do why does the company duplicate attractions and plop them down in different parks, right? And we, we, we discussed that at length. But to me, if you take if you take Star Wars and you try and stuff it everywhere it can go, uh, in Florida, what you're really doing is you're you're undermining the distinctiveness of the studios from the other parks, and yeah. that really was the first domino to fall with Epcot. Was that, you know, at least allegedly, the urban myth is that kids would go to Epcot and say, "Where's Mickey?" You know, so and that started this trend of instead of offering offering two differentiated parks, what could we do to make Epcot, which is a a lower earner, more like the Magic Kingdom, which is our big earner, and you know, we we know how that story ended. So I, I don't. I, if there's a story to tell in the Magic Kingdom with Star Wars IP, and they can do it well, then do it. But don't start with the idea that how do we put Star Wars in these other places because that is going to lead to heartache and crap. Well, I mean, that is a much bigger stretch outside of the studios and the Magic Kingdom. They te- they technically did it at Disneyland though. Yeah. Right, and that's they're they're doing it in Disneyland where they have the separation uh of Star Tours and uh, uh Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. They te- they technically have that in the studios as well. 
But I, if anything, if they're going to expand Star Wars, I think they relax the timeline uh, vibe of Batu and uh, kind of add Star Tours to the land by getting rid of the Muppets area and the uh, the other uh, surrounding restaurants. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the logical spot. Cuts though. both I mean, ways, Ben. You son uh, of a- <laughs> you're going to fuck why? up Epcot. I'm going to fuck up the studios. Why are you going to the best ways? park in the world? That's, that's not cool. <laughs> They're not putting it in Animal Kingdom. <laughs> they are soon. <laughs> what ban- are we putting in the Animal Kingdom? Or the are we ban- doing, the uh, Bantha ride is going in Animal Kingdom. Uh <laughs> Uh, but I mean, like, we, we talk about, there, don't worry. we talk about thematic fit and there are, uh, Indiana Jones was a example that Tony Baxter used saying that you can come up with a treatment for Indiana Jones that works in all four parks. But I don't know that there really is. I don't know if the same is true for Star Wars. Um, I'm sure that there are creative people that are possibly even working this problem right now, but I don't like the idea, and we've said it on here as well, that you're starting backwards from the IP. You should be starting Absolutely. you should be starting with the themed environment or area that you or park that you want to go in and then work towards what's appropriate as opposed to working backwards. So, so what's what is keeping them from doing that at the Magic Kingdom right now though and doing almost exactly what they did at Disneyland and going, you know, kind of north uh, northwest of Big Thunder Mountain and go outside the berm. Obviously, we were doing it with Tron, so we're not we're not limiting ourselves to staying within the train tracks anymore. Uh, the studios needed it more. That's what the limit was. Exactly. But what what if they sat around and go, we want more Star Wars? Why couldn't they do it at the Magic Kingdom? I'm not saying it's a good idea, but they shoehorned it in at Disneyland and people. I don't know. Have you heard an overwhelming people just complaining and and bitching about Star Wars being in Disneyland that would keep you from doing it to the Magic Kingdom? I think that there there was some complaints, but no. I think the overall consensus is that once everything opened, that it was a good addition. But it wasn't open there for very long uh, before those parks got shut down. So you don't really have a true – you don't have a true measure of its popularity. You haven't been given that opportunity thanks to COVID. Um, So the demand – the demand right now is artificial because of the inadequacies of uh, Rise of the Resistance capacity. The, so the, you can't really assess it yet. But let's say that there is a demand. I don't really have an objection to them giving you a bigger Star Wars footprint in the Magic Kingdom. Yeah. I don't, I don't really object to it, but I think the more logical thing is to put it all in the studios. And whether that is expand Batu and get rid of Star Tours or uh, make Star Tours part of Batu, whatever the solution may be, um, I think the more logical approach is that the studio still has a need for it. So uh, yeah. studios right now, while there's no construction walls up, it's not like the park is complete, like, oh, we're over and done with. We, we've solved everything that's wrong with that park. There are still uh, significant pockets of that park that need attendance, that need uh, attractions, and we've said it when we were talking about Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway that it was a mistake putting that where they did because they needed the additional the additional ride there and yeah. great movie ride. So well, I, I, I would throw this out there just as a you know there's a story for everything type type deal. If you want to build off of that, you know, say they wanted to do something based on the Mandalorian and something off of Baby sure. Yoda and the popularity is taken off. You know, that's a that's as close to a, a popular western as we have anything on TV right now. 
you know, well, Star Wars is a space western. It is a space western. So you you do have that frontier land area. There there possibly could be a transition from a old west western to a science fiction western. Yeah, and aesthetically, that, that's not a big reach. Yeah, have that transition into that area. Uh, you know, every episode of uh, the Mandalorian seems to feature an area that's almost just like that stretch uh, of uh, storefronts that we have in Frontierland right now. Like, yeah. like he shows up in an area, the people of that area need help, and he he helps them in that episode. Uh, there, there possibly could be a, a relatively easy transition point between those two sections if you wanted to add Star Wars to that corner of the park. I, I still maintain that keep it in, in Hollywood studios. I like a level of consistency, but I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be heartbroken of yeah. if, if Disney put star Wars also in the magic kingdom. We, we can't see each other right now, but I just love imagining Josh shooting me double birds over uh, the computer <laughs> right now. I would have to be awake to do that. <laughs> we do have one more question and I think it's going to be a relatively a uh, uh, quick one. Uh, we will let Josh answer it, but do you think there's any chance of the 42. Dodgers Lakers or 2021 Super Bowl champions having a delayed championship parade at Disney world? This is from Joe de Alba. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the thing is they got to, they got to bring Wagner off early because the thing about Arsenal is they're always trying to walk it in. <laughs> uh, ben, same question. As long as they wear their masks. They could do it. I, I think the <laughs> ship has sailed, uh, Joe. Uh, Joe is our resident uh, Los Angeles sports fan. You're welcome for Mookie, by the way. I think that, uh, unfortunately, they those parade opportunities are – they're almost always within a day or two of the championship happening. Yeah. And that's not happening this year. So. No, not For those year. of you who didn't catch it, I'm pretty sure the words that I said relate to football. <laughs> not they America do. football. They do. <laughs> Did it make sense? Sure. A bit. So as we said at the outset of the listener questions, we are sitting on a couple. Uh, one from Bruce McClintock. I'm sitting on that one. McClintock. I'm sitting on the other one. right now. Okay. <laughs> uh, one from Matt Kaufman. Um, those will be part of a future show. Uh, they are great questions and really kind of are part of the imagineering exercises that we like to do. Uh, but I think that's going to wrap this show. If you have any questions or topic ideas, you can email us at martycall at gmail.com and perhaps have an entire show devoted to you like Matt and Bruce will. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter under the username at martycalled or join in on the discussions in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash martycalled. Uh, as I mentioned before, we'd also appreciate our listeners bookmarking our Amazon affiliate link over on martycalled.com. Uh, you got a few days left before Christmas and you've got... If you got Amazon Prime, you might be able to get something before then. Um, it doesn't cost you anything, but helps fund the show with purchases you're going to be making anyway. Ben, where can we find you online? You can find me on Twitter at RealSkipperBen, and you can find my top 10 column in every issue of Attractions Magazine. Josh, same question. Utilidors.com. And you can find me at WDW Theme Parks on Twitter, www.themeparks.com. Thanks for listening. Wait, Merry wait, Christmas. Wait, Happy wait, New Year. Wait, nope, wait, I've already said it. Wait, no, I, I have more. <laughs> I want to remind everyone again, uh, my dear friend Chris Tucker at ChrisTuckersHotSauce.com, uh, totally up my cooking game, buy some of his stuff. It's delicious. He not, does not pay me to, to say this. Perhaps we should get in on that. Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> that was ending with a whimper. Yes. <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed this short show. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> 205 is what I'm looking at. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. 
Ben, do you have your pages ready? I have my pages ready. Crinkle those pages. Hold on. Papyrus. Oh, yeah. Pounding reeds flat. (laughs) Give it to me, Gutenberg. (laughs) Texas. Texas or taxes? I wonder if that was ever said in uh, the set of Three Men and a Baby. (laughs) I'm sorry? I wonder if that was ever said on Three Men and a Baby, the set of Three Men and a Baby. Give it to me, Gutenberg. That was a funnier joke than you guys even credit to. Yeah, I got to think. Wasn't he Hightower? I was thinking of the the Police Academy version. Uh, Maybe it should have gone Police Academy, maybe. He was the opposite of Hightower. You went for the very, the more obscure film. Not that that was an obscure <laughs> film in its day, but it is now. You I go ask a millennial what three men are doing. I baby. ruined the joke. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great. It's so great when we start the recording with the end of the show. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty much how it always goes. <laughs> <laughs>